As a forward, again, you only need one chance to ruin his 70 minutes. You have to have that mentality all the time. I only one ball here. You're in trouble again. The Football Pod is available every Tuesday exclusively on the OTB Sports app. OTB AM. With Gillette, put your best face forward with our new and improved razors. And you're very welcome along. It's Wednesday morning. It's uh, Jaron Owen with you all the way through until 10 o'clock this morning. If you want to get involved in the conversation, we'd love to hear from you. 0879-180-180 is the WhatsApp number. We're going to get straight into uh, Congress because it happens this week. And obviously we've been talking about the equality measures that are being pushed forward by the GPA. Very interesting to see what's going to happen with that. It's overshadowed somewhat the massive debate that we had in advance of Special Congress about uh, championship reforms and restructures. Today, Martin Brownie, uh, takes a, a suture with surgical procedure to this week's proposals and goes, come on, this is ridiculous. This is absolutely ridiculous. Now, I would argue that uh, his piece in advance of last Congress gave people the heebie-jeebies and we'd have been much closer to his preferred solution if we'd taken what had happened at the last Congress and, and gone through, but we didn't, so... Yeah, like it definitely feels that there's been a lot of arguments that are made against this weekend's proposal going to the floor, including by Martin Brownie, that could have been remedied by a lot of what was on the floor with Proposal B. Or a fix to Proposal B. If if they, if they were so incensed by the team in Division 1 who finishes 7th, hmm. 6th, like who's going to finish 6th in Division 1? Yeah, one thing that's kind of just come to mind here is that two things. First of all, uh, Congress being on this time of year probably not a great idea if they want to get everybody in the country talking about it because in fairness the Irish Independent has, uh, and Martin Brennan's piece is one of the only pieces I've read about it this week because there was actual Gaelic games on the, the, the National League has got the story of the demise of one of the greatest teams of all time Limerick aren't winning games in the hurling there is a lot to talk about in the pitch the club finals were absolutely astonishing so uh, people are pretty busy when it comes to covering Gaelic games at the moment whereas the Special Congress kind of fitted beautifully into a void last October November but second to that, I think there's also been a lack of noise around this weekend's special congress because people are just unenthused about the motion that's going to the floor. Proposal B had everybody talking because it was radical. This one this weekend is like, Meh, I guess it's good. I don't know if it is good, though. <laughs> I actually don't know if it's good. I, I, don't think it, I don't think it's really progress at all. So what has happened is that, the, as, as Brownie points out, the provincial councils have won all of the back-channel arguments and they are still at the core and the centre of the competition. So we are still going to have whoopings handed out in the first round of the Connacht, Leinster, Ulster and Munster Championships uh, to, to the Minnows who will then be shuttled off to a B competition called the Talchon Cup. Um, and so you, you, I think your phrase was it's basically uh, an extended version of the Super 8s which is what we're getting. Yeah, so two sets of Super 8s would be your All-Ireland Championship and 24 games to eliminate four teams in uh, the groups of four as well would be another stick to beat it with. Like, I do think that with Dublin's poor form at the moment, I think that were we presented with the 2019 All-Ireland football structure, it actually might have been good this year. Like, I think that... Super uh, 8s. Yeah, as in, oh, I yeah. think that they actually, uh, we actually did have. So if we're comparing that to what we would have, I think the differences are, are very small. And because of the fact that only the bottom teams get knocked out of these groups of four. I think that that level of seeding is relatively meaningless. The seeding, of course, coming from the National League. 
which for me is, is a good idea. I do think it is progress. I'm not saying it's big progress. I think it's better than the thing that we have at the moment, which is the qualifiers and straight knockout from the last eight. I think that it will be better and I think there will be good matches. But I think one of the main reasons for that is because the top eight teams in the country are all pretty close together at the moment. Yeah, well, I, it, you could you can make the case the top ten teams are getting closer together because Dublin have come back to the pack and maybe we're entering a, a situation where the top 15 teams might be levelling out where, you know, Cavan are currently in Division 4 but they're playing better than that and they have a footballing population that suggests they should be in Division 2 and that they're capable of, of competing at that level so like if there's two divisions where the teams are all good then maybe this works out but the problem is the weather over the last couple of weeks right like what we should be playing now are matches that don't have any significant really to the end of the season but what will happen is that some good team is going to be playing into a, a gale force wind in the final round of the Division 2 league and the wind will turn round and they'll get they won't get promoted or they'll get relegated and suddenly they'll be into the Talchon Cup and it's like because somebody else wins through by a quirk of the draw to the provincial final they're grandfathered in you're booted out and it's like what? but we were we were better that's the that's the game that's the the, the nature of it like I, I I do think that that comes down to a different problem as well though with regards to playing inter-county football in the worst time of the year and uh, it's still it's not going to change the fact that the vast majority of the games are going to be played in terrible weather the National League will still be the best competition probably in, in Ireland except for the fact that it'll be played in the worst time of year in Ireland so uh, that doesn't make a whole pile of sense I do think that the four groups of four will be relatively exciting if uh, like it does have a lack of jeopardy and I do see this as positive if we're looking to make progress and positive if we're looking for something better down the line which is taking out that really unfortunate bit in the middle the unfairness of the provincial championships and it could be another 25 years before we get the opportunity to tackle that again because they, they won they won the arguments they were the ones who um, put the press gang out and, and lobbied the votes and, and uh, shop stewarded not, not shop stewarded what, what is it uh, whipped whipped the votes how could I have forgotten 7.35 this morning if you want to get in touch with us 087-9180-180 is the WhatsApp number or of course you can always leave a comment in the YouTube stream we're going to talk more about Congress in just a second with Andy McGinley the manager of the Antrim Footballers but also of course an Ergil Kieran clubman. Uh, there's been a, a strong reaction to the decision making over the last number of years about the age groups at underage level in particular. There's been uh, a number of motions proposed. Some of them have been taken off the table about the under 17 age group and the under 19 age group. Um, and we'll get to Andy McGinley in just one second to talk about that because that, that uh, I think, is actually going to end up being one of the, the big sticking point to Congress it's certainly one of the, the points that people have been most interested in and exercised by and we'll find out why In uh, we'll find out now why actually we've got Enda McGinley with us Enda good morning to you how are you? I'm good So listen um, we're talking here about the under 17 and under 19 and the the recalibration of the minor age group from under 18 to under 17 from your own experience in Ergil Kieran, what has been the impact? Uh, the impact is simply that you see young good, keen footballers at 16 and a half years of age and their underage football. Uh, and that has seemed nuts right from the start when when these proposals were brought in. Uh, and it, when, when you see it in action, when you see the young players that don't have any underage football next year or any credible underage football next year, you think that is just simply not right. And while some of them will stick at it, they are at least three, four years away physically from being able to compete realistically for senior football places at the very age where life, 
sort of starts to open up and you start to have loads of other lifestyle temptations and everything else, we are essentially cutting them off from a really good, meaningful uh, age level. And and the, the question of why we changed from the original uh, has to be asked all, all the more. But I think just even putting the authority back with the counties and letting them decide what's best for them, because uh, the, the under-17 thing just doesn't seem to fit. Uh, certainly most clubs that I've been talking to, most players cannot understand it. You, you raised the point about why the decision was made in the first place. The the, the GEA will say, and, and I, I'm not making their argument for them, but just the, they will say that there was a couple of reports, uh, one specifically around burnout, where it did seem to be a fairly big issue that um, kids were being torn in different areas by uh, particularly the demands of inter-county training, the leave inserts, sometimes it was college students and them, you know, uh, acclimatising to that and then also playing for their club minor team, their uh, <coughs> county, <coughs> uh, or their club under 21 team, etc. And that was one of the, the main kind of thrusts of the discussion around this. Has that yeah. not been, is, is that not right in your view at, at club level? Does that not actually carry through? The, the, the problem is, so in addressing, I think the, the burnout issue was there in reports and I think theoretically, uh, it, it was certainly potential. I know I myself came through that sort of theme of, of huge amount of training in, in those age groups, uh, and most players did. It, it was what we were used to. I think now with sports sense and everything else, I think that can be better managed. But critically there, you're, you're absolutely bang on. It was brought in to address burnout, and burnout was a thing that affected the very top level of club player who was both club minor, county minor, club senior, schools football. For And those players, those are the few players that probably would be able to step up after 17 years of age into their senior rank because you're dealing with the elite. But the dropout, the dropout figures, and somehow I think the GA conflated that the burnout was the key thing behind dropout. I don't believe it was. I don't believe there's any evidence to suggest it might have been a factor, but it wasn't the only one. Dropout is about engagement and having good, meaningful competition there and enjoying your sport. Uh, dropping people from underage football from six, or underage hurling football from under 16 and a half or 17 is is just crazy and the burnout issue did not apply to the vast majority of club footballers who at 17, 18 years of age their only football is with their club Did the under 19 age group not work? Is that is that not attractive enough to keep that group of players that you're talking about who aren't good enough to go to senior, who aren't ready for that and who aren't going to play inter-county. Did the under-19 not really take off? Is that kind of... Is there a reason behind that? Is that fixable at all? I I think the issue here is that to try and make the under-17 thing stick, they created this thing that somehow will create a great under-19 competition, having never been able to run good under-21 competitions at clubs. It was always a wee sort of pushed thing into a corner. It was never really a meaningful competition uh, at all for players. You were either playing senior or you were playing minor. You happened to then play a bit of under-21, but it was never ran properly. The under-17s is really popular with fixture committees because it clears, it separates the youth football from the senior football and allows fixtures to be run cleaner. But if that's the case, and if that's a benefit of the under-17s, then it's it's completely false for the GA to then somehow claim that the under-19 competition will be run, run brilliantly when by moving to under-17 you removed the slight issue at under-18. Under-19, the crossover is going to be even bigger with your club senior sides and your club reserve sides. 
So to try and get a proper fixture campaign in there isn't isn't going to happen in an already condensed club season. So they, they will try and argue, and, and they're pushing under 19 at county level. That's a again, that's a different thing. What what works for county does not apply for club because the crossover between underage and senior is greater, uh, and the under 19 competitions are not going to get off the ground properly or in any meaningful way to hold on to players properly at that age group. It's perfectly fine for the GA to come out and say, well, this is the solution. How are fixture committees going to work a proper under-19 competition in, into, their, in, into their calendar? I just don't see it. The under-17s will be the, the end of underage football for the vast majority of footballers. OK, Cara Kane's been writing about this in the Irish News today. He's spoken to John McEntee as well. And this seems to be uh, something that certainly... Uh, so there wasn't originally... Um, a proposal from Pat McEnany's club, which he has taken off. I think they, they have taken off the uh, Clara this weekend um, at Congress. What, what, what is the situation more than likely going to happen at Congress as far as you understand it at the moment? And because you've come out very strongly about this this week. So it's obviously something that you feel and you're getting uh, feedback on from other clubs as well as your own. I haven't met anybody involved at club level or with club minors or used to used to players at that level that have that have seen at any stage since this suggestion was muted that this was a good idea. I think it makes sense from a theory point of view. I can understand. I see some stuff coming out about overuse injuries, but the primary age range that the biggest changes happen from overuse injuries is actually down at under 14 level when, when the body's really developing. Then, yes, the stresses apply on up. But again, to the normal club footballers, that's not the issue. It's given them credible competition. And it just whenever you look physically at lads, at 16 and a half, 17, the game has advanced so much at senior level in terms of strength and conditioning. And that's at club level. That to put 16 and a half, 17-year-olds under the pressure to physically get up to senior grade is is possibly dangerous for for them as well, but it's just not it's not right in terms of their development. And by cutting them off, like it's sixteen and a half years of age to say, and there's fellas this year in my club that I can see really good young fellas, and sixteen and a half years of age, they're done with underage football. Can uh, I, can it, I, it doesn't make sense. Is, is there a, is there a world in which the intercounty game and the club game could be completely separate? And I, there, the, I think um, one of the points made in, in Cara's piece is that there's. Uh, there's a desire for uniformity from Croke Park and from the powers that be that actually everybody will have the same system and everybody will know exactly what's, what's happening. Um, but is there a world in which actually the best thing is that the clubs can continue on with their under 16 and, and minor and piecemeal under 21 and that uh, the inter-county game could be under 17 and under 19 if they so desire? Hey, I, I, I don't see a particular uh, argument against that. I, I think they, they can probably continue. It'll be up to development squads and county squads to be able to pick players and potentially then for, say, your your top-level 18-year-old who might have been playing county under 17. Well, then at 18, they can concentrate on their club minors and on making that step up to club seniors. And that's the other thing. By, by cutting a, a straight line, between under 17 and senior for me you're always better to play across two age groups you play at your own age group where you're the top player and you can really look to have huge impact in games and then you play a level up which is a tougher age group and where you really have to sort of work harder at your your skills at your game to try and compete at that level up for a really good 17 year old now 
we're letting them lord it at their under-17 grade. They get no senior experience at all, and suddenly then they're cut completely, and their only football is senior grade. So again, it just doesn't work from a developmental thing for those players as well. Uh, it works neatly from a fixture committee point of view. I understand that. But from the players' point of view, uh, it just creates huge opportunities for dropout in terms of needing to be the same again across club and county. I'm not convinced of that. But my thing, like the motion is about putting the power back to individual counties to allow them to decide. And you're saying there that the GA would like uniformity. But you're looking at how senior grades are run throughout the county. Counties have different ways of moving between junior, intermediate and senior. They run their senior championships and senior leagues completely different. There's star games in some counties. There's championship leagues. There's state knockout championships. Counties have their own power to run it at that. And that seems to be hugely successful from a club championship point of view and doesn't matter across different grades. So I can't see why the same autonomy isn't offered out to county to run their underage settings. And, And what's the drawback if counties do decide to go with the under-18 route within their own county. Is that egg on the face for Croke Park? Is, is that what the problem is? If it turns out that all the counties or the vast majority of counties stick with under-17, well, then that's vindication from Croke Park and they can tidy it up in a couple of years' time. Or it leaves you great research to be able to truly look at the impact of dropout or the impact of overuse injuries. Because I don't think there is actual, they'll quote these papers, but nothing is actually researched on the impact of the current changes and how that will uh, add or take away from dropout or overuse injuries. They keep on quoting it. This would be a, your perfect chance to def- to to definitively answer the question of what route is best if counties choose different routes. But I think honestly, the vast vast majority of counties would move to under eighteen, under sixteen, under fourteen, the way it always was. The way there was very little issues about, and the burnout thing, which was affecting your elite county level underage player, did not affect your vast majority of club players. But once again, we brought in wide-ranging rule changes to suit a very small group of, of people. All right, and we leave it there. Thanks a million for that, and uh, we'll see what happens at Congress this weekend. That's Enda McGinley, obviously the current Antrim manager, <coughs> uh, physiotherapist, so probably potentially the most qualified guest we can possibly have, and somebody who has been involved at underage level in his club and has come through that system as a successful player and coach in the past too. So um, it's big depth of feeling out there about this, and I wasn't quite sure why, but I definitely have a much better feeling and understanding of it now so if anybody has any views on that and you want to get in touch 0879-180-180 is the WhatsApp number a reminder OTBAM brought to you by Gillette good morning start with Gillette put your best face forward with their new and improved razors uh, right here's what's coming up between now and 10 o'clock on the show this morning we've talked in the beginning there about Congress Kombu is going to join us to run through the football stories and a bit of tennis Keith Wood's going to join us at 10 past 8 we've got sports pages at half 8 we have um, sports news including the uh, thoughts of John Duggan on the Ushin Murphy case, uh, the latest on Phil Mickelson, who's stepping away from golf for a little while to, you know, count his money. Polly Clifford, we have um, an interview to help launch Comortis, the Polly O'Shea tournament at 8.50. Daniel Harris is going to join us to preview Man United against Atletico Madrid. And maybe we'll talk about uh, Lukaku as well at that point and Rebecca Clancy from uh, last night to preview the start of the Formula One season coming your way at half nine. So a really busy programme for you. Uh, in the meantime, Colin Bowie at 7.48. Good morning to you. How are you? Sure, on. Hello. Um, so we, we had you in to talk about football, but luckily the big breaking tennis story overnight is that uh, tennis stars are selfish, egotistical. What was the rest of what, um, what was what, the description of Phil Nicholson? We need to learn those words, the order of those words, and turn it into um, a meme. Uh, Zverev, who, who is Zverev and what's going on? 
But he's playing a doubles match in the Mexican Open and he lost with his uh, partner Melo and took the loss very, very badly uh, and literally took it out on the umpire and just missed his feet. He whacked him or whacked his uh, chair two or three times. There you go on screen if you can see it and if you can't, he's absolutely smacking the chair. Sits down with his partner, gets back up. A few expletives here saying you effing ruined the match. Goes from again. And by that stage, he had about three or four seconds to actually think about what he had just done. Which is odd as well because he actually shook the opponent's hands who had won. So it wasn't like he stormed off when the opponents won through an ace. It was like he stormed over to the umpire. And it was like he ruined everything. You know, he had uh, the five yards walk or so to the net. Shook hands with everybody. And then kind of uh, walked with a bit more intent until he got to the umpire. And then just absolutely lost it. And it's one of those like... If Zarev hits you with a racket, like he's, a, he's an athlete. They do wait. That's, that's going to hurt. Yeah, well, it's one of those like tennis most outrageous moments if Sky decided to do it. But the thing with Zverev is the comedy kind of dissipates when you realise, you know, there's a, a few nefarious allegations against Zverev at the moment and there's an ATP investigation on... This is that guy. Um, to do with his, uh, yeah, his ex, uh, Adia Sharipova, who accused him of uh, domestic abuse, which Zverev has always denied. And an investigation is taking place... Uh, but he's playing away in the meantime. He's, he's doing very well. His career's um, blossoming. He hasn't won a Grand Slam, but he was two points away from victory at the US Open against Dominic Team in 2020, I believe. Right. So he's nearly won a Grand Slam, but he's always there, thereabouts. He's kind of a perennial last 16 quarterfinalist in Grand Slams. He has millions of social media followers. He's a big deal in Germany and around the world. But I suppose because of these allegations against him, he's not the most popular guy and he definitely hasn't helped his cause by what he just did there, you know. For some people, that might be, oh, you know, he's lost his mind and it's a bit... I wouldn't say endearing is definitely the wrong word, but it's, you know, oh, there he goes again. He's well, lost it. But if it's Zverev, it's, you know... When someone shows you who nice they are, believe picture. them. That's the... When, you know, we, 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 you can draw conclusions from people on the basis of their actions, and uh, this is in public. This is now to an audience, and it's, it's flashed around the world on Twitter overnight. So... Um, what recourse do the ATP have here? I mean, uh, like, if somebody from the crowd came down and did this, that person would be banned for life. If somebody yeah. on the field of play is doing it on the court, like, they can surely throw the book at him for this. Well, what do you, like, what do you think? You know, it's a high-profile tennis player. Like, he should be banned. He should be immediately disqualified from the tournament because he's still in the singles. He won the singles. He actually uh, broke a record for the latest ever finish to a match at 5-5 five to five in the morning in the singles match that he won. Uh, so he's still in the tournament. He's still there in Mexico. So he should They've be kicked out of the tournament. Yeah, and, but and, and I, and I don't know months. if they will. I don't know if they will. I'd say they might heavily fine him uh, because they need names for tournaments. I know that's very cynical, but they want the bigger names in. I don't know. It depends on how much of a backlash there is. I'd say they'll wait to see what the backlash is. If you look on Twitter, it's pretty monumental this morning. I can imagine it'll only grow as the day goes on. And as the days go on, we still have yet to hear from Zverev about why he did it. I'm sure he'll release a statement. He'll apologise. Said, I lost my head. I wasn't thinking straight. Uh, by all accounts, this is because of a dodgy line call or a perceived dodgy line call on the behalf of Zverev that the uh, umpire made. And he'll probably come out and say, you know, uh, it was out of character. I didn't mean it. I'm very sorry. And I want to move on. That's what I anticipate happening. But what should happen is the guy should receive a lengthy ban. Yeah, and you should, you should go and um, familiarise yourself with the unbelievably serious allegations that have been made against him of domestic abuse. Yeah. He is under investigation by the ATP for this, but that investigation is now stretching to months and months and months. His ex-girlfriend, Olga Sharapova, 
made very serious allegations against him um, of repeated uh, different instances and um, the, the journalism stacking up those allegations was very in-depth and very strong and I would urge you all to go and, and read them and then um, tie that up with the video that you're seeing there. And he just misses his foot, the umpire. And the umpire has the foot hanging, his right foot. And if he doesn't move that, he's going he's gonna to smash his ankle into the chair. Like, that could have been vicious. And then the umpire, I, ca- I can't believe how, uh, how relaxed he was. I mean, externally, when that was happening. Very calm. Just walked away. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's madness. I couldn't believe it when I saw it this morning. First thing, it's quite the sight to wake up to. And All if you right. haven't seen it, definitely watch it. That's the explainer of uh, what's going on with, uh, with Zverev overnight. This is in Mexico, is that what it was? Yeah, Mexico. Yeah. Okay. yeah. All right. And Novak Djokovic is back, sure. You'll be delighted to know. Well, look, I mean... match back. It, He's not an expert in IT, but there was some question marks about whether or not the COVID cert and the thing had happened on time. Presumably, there's a big investigation into that because, you know, if there's any hint of wrongdoing around falsifying documents, that's an automatic expulsion from the sport for three years. Like, but Novak Djokovic is back. That seems to have disappeared. That, that narrative seems to have... We're fading, we're fading that narrative just to make sure that he can play and, and continue the chase of the titles, right? He was welcome back with open arms in Dubai. And uh, won quite convincingly. So um, tennis has just got a bit more exciting. There you go. Talk return. And that's the whole point. Uh, 0879-180-180 is the WhatsApp number. If you want to get involved, you can leave a comment for us on the YouTube stream or, of course, you can tweet us at OffTheBallAM. Uh, Chelsea won last night. Fairly routine victory, but no Romelu Lukaku. We didn't talk about Lukaku on the show yesterday. It, the, it seems that there's a, like a, a drip feed around Lukaku, kind of like when they were releasing those stories about Boris Johnson and every single party, there'd be a new story every week about a new element to the party. It seems that like... He so, had a beer! It's, it's like that there's new awful stats about Lukaku that are just popping out of random at, at the moment. Like, who scored at, I think, maybe around half one yesterday afternoon, just out of nowhere, tweeted, Romelu Lukaku has lost possession as a result of an unsuccessful touch more times, 29, than he has shot on goal 28 in the Premier League this season I'm like you could have tweeted that after the game at the weekend yeah. but they were like just waiting for it waiting for everybody to get their Lukaku takes out of the way day of the Chelsea game and then push that one out uh, like I mean there is uh, it's been a terrible terrible season for, for Romelu Lukaku and his comeback Jamie Vardy had nine touches against Crystal Palace at Sellers Park a few years ago yeah. it was never mentioned it wasn't that was I think the narrative attack on Lukaku yeah. or Romelu I, I, I did see that I saw that carried in in the paper on Monday actually did he score? I think, he did, I think it was the one where he did the eagle celebration in front of the fans. Right. Then there was definitely... You write off the touches then. There was definitely a, a situation where... Uh, was it the, the start of last season? I remember when Leicester beat Manchester City on the opening day of the season? Yeah. Uh, or it was early in the season. And I think Jamie Vardy only touched, I think, maybe on top of the goals he scored, maybe another three or four times. But I think this is a very different scenario. Context is everything. And yeah. the context of this is that Lukaku has come back and has been very poor for Chelsea and subsequently got dropped. Jamie Vardy had not been poor for Leicester City in that period and hadn't got dropped. I think, I think they're very, very different situations. Like you, you have him going on Snapchat today before the Club World Cup final saying, if you have to force it, then it probably doesn't fit. Which, I mean, you don't need to be a genius to, to read between the lines there. And then Thomas Tuchel on Saturday coming out after that game in the Premier League saying that there's a history of strikers struggling a little bit at Chelsea so it may not be the easiest place in the world for strikers. So, that is yeah. weird. That it bit weird. was... That he, one. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. I, it is weird because it's he's saying it like he's an external pundit to the situation and not the actual his manager. <laughs> well, uh, also, what, what does the failings of Fernando Torres and Andrei Shevchenko and a bunch of other strikers who you Falcao. can... Like, what, what does that... Higuain. Morata. What do, what do they all have to do with... <laughs> 
with Lukaku and your inability to get yeah. value for Lukaku, which it, it clearly looked like he was not involved in the signing of. And so therefore, whatever the, the long-term situation... The, I mean, the, Henry Winter was right. I apologise, Henry. You were correct. The what clock was ticking. Remember the oh, remember yeah. Sorry, vampires? Tick tock, tick tock, tick tock. First day. First day he's there. Tick tock, tick tock. He's right. He was. It was ticking. And the clock has started to get louder and louder and louder and louder. And Tuchel's on his way out. Even if he wins the Champions League again this year, I think there's like a six months of next season. Well, make my striker be better. Especially with what's going on at the moment, if they do start to sanction Abramovich properly. Well, that will be a, a very interesting thing. So I, I think there's two parts to this. I think there's like the, the historical Chelsea context, and we've listed off all the, the strikers there. But then there is also the current context of being a number nine in the Premier League. Manchester City were running away with this title race the season after Sergio Aguero leaves. Haven't replaced him quite pointedly. Roberto Firmino, not an out-and-out num- number nine, has essentially been leapfrogged by Diogo Jota. Uh, the rest of the top three, so Chelsea are in third. Fourth, Arsenal, their star number nine, has left the club. Alexander Lacazette. <laughs> I mean, and not necessarily amazing. Uh, I guess Antonio West Ham is, is maybe somebody who's, who's done pretty well. Manchester United signed a, a number nine in Cristiano Ronaldo. Not exactly being great. And St. Cavani is uh, under fire. They're trying to, to morph wide players into the strikers and then you look at the top scorers this season in the Premier League Salah yeah. Jota Sterling Bruno and then you get to someone like Emmanuel Dennis who really isn't even a, a number nine himself scoring plenty of goals can play there but he's playing off Josh King Son Ronaldo Emil Smith-Rowe Rafinha Vardy there and Sadio Mane are all on, on joint nine so Jamie Vardy really is the only out and out number nine in the top 12 uh, goal scorers this year in the, in the Premier League Right I have a question for you both and for everyone out there what position is Mo Salah or Sadio Mane? What actual position are they? Forwards. They're just general forwards. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. that's what's happening. Attackers. Just, there's final third players now, but the idea of yeah. a number nine in centre forward is dying out. Yeah. Well, totally. uh, ever, since, uh, ever since Spain won a World Cup without a number nine. Like, uh, the, and that Barcelona team, Messi played nine, but did he? Not really. Like, you wouldn't say he was kind of sitting there yeah, on fluid. the edge of the box to be a fox in the box. Like, the Franny Jeffers. Ask your dad. Um, so... I, like there will be teams who play this way and I think that it sounds like Barcelona are playing that way at the moment they're whipping crosses in and so there's uh, you know there'll be a there'll be a swing back but like they signed him even though they didn't need him exactly and it's the square peg round hole uh, this is the finishing touch to help them win the league it wasn't they didn't like, just sign him they spent 90 million quid yeah. on him for a player that would completely transform how they attack and who were we talking to that said oh Laro said he reckons that there will be buyers for him now there aren't that many buyers for him, but Antonio Conte might be a buyer for him in the summer. There's a with, possibility. Uh, with Spurs, or yeah. will he go back it, to Italy? It, well, no, if Spurs... Well, who knows? Yeah. Who knows? If Antonio Conte is the Man United manager, does Lukaku go back? Can he get something out of him? Can he get a tune out of him? Maybe not. Maybe Lukaku does not go back. No, I don't think Lukaku goes back to Manchester United. I, I think Conte and, and Lukaku teaming up again at Tottenham would be an interesting one if they use the Harry Kane money to go and buy Lukaku and uh, team him up with uh, Youngman Son as a front two like Martinez last season because that's, that's his only way of, of getting uh, back yeah, to form is that, yeah. is that they've, they've got a front two and also the front two are in a traditional sense the, the kind of spearhead of your attack but uh, it's not new news that the game has changed which makes the whole thing more astonishing we could have had this conversation about number nines three seasons ago and yet yeah. Chelsea are Champions League winners and they go out and spend 90 million quid on an out and out number nine and I think it was probably just a reaction to Timo Werner not scoring a lot of goals that well, season. Yeah, he, he failed. Your boy came off the bench last night. The extended highlights that I was watching, it was like, oh, Werner's coming on. They're showing Werner coming on. Something good. And nothing happened. <laughs> 
Like, well, I mean, that's my, his highlights. My, my, what you say is my boy. I said that maybe he'd score more goals than Lukaku at the end of the season. No, like, I mean, that's not what you said. That's no, not what you said. No, what I said. no, no. no you said he's going to be like top. T- he's going to be top scorer. No, I said he's going to be a breakout superstar. No, I didn't say that. No, I, no, I didn't. I said that he might score more goals than Lukaku this season. A, a take which has not yet expired. I, I've, got, love, I've got till February out of that one. Do you love Werner? He loves I mean, Werner. I do, I do love Werner. I really want him to succeed. Yeah, but, he seems he seems lovely. He does he? seem lovely. Yeah, a lovely guy. He does. You really want him to do well. He's but on Lukaku. Have you ever seen such a high-profile person basically regret a career move as much as he has from going to Inter to Chelsea? <laughs> I mean, he literally came out and said it. Yeah. <laughs> and he started by scoring away to Arsenal. And he was delighted to be back to Chelsea because he had unfinished business. Yeah. It didn't, and then it was the, that it, meme of, oh my God, what have I done? Like, I guess, I guess if you're Lukaku, you're looking around and saying, how can I get on the end of a tax? Who's going to give me the opportunity here? One of those people is Mason Mount, who wasn't there at the weekend. Yeah. But more importantly than that is Ben Chilwell and Rhys James. And I, I would say their injuries have had a knock-on impact on Lukaku's ability to, to play well this season. It's not the only thing, obviously. There's a whole range of other uh, you elements You forget here. about their, like their, that I had forgotten about the extent of the injury issues. If you were to take out the first choice fullback, now is Chilwell first choice? Probably not, but he was getting there. He had, he he had nailed it down before he got injured. And if you were to take the first choice fullbacks out of, say, Liverpool, for example, how good would the team be at the moment and yeah. how well would everybody be playing? Yeah, you but know? it's ultimately with Lukaku, it's just that the manager doesn't fancy him. Well, that, and that Lukaku needs, seems to be a big issue. He needs support. Sure. I don't think it matters about the setup. And and But but linking him, linking him, even subconsciously, in the minds of the fans and the media and the owners, to all of the other failures, that is a flex. That is like, well, look, you know, I mean, is he is he the new Fernando Torres? He might be. I'm not saying it. It's just Fernando Torres, the ghost of him, and Shevchenko. He was your boy. He was he was amazing. He was the best striker in the world. Like, he, how did Shevchenko fail? Hernan Crespo wasn't a failure, was he? He was just there in such a short time. It's only about a year, year and a half. Still, I suppose it? people they have a kinder opinion of Crespo because of what he did before and after Chelsea. So he, he was, you know, he wasn't great at Chelsea, though, was he? He just didn't play that much. That's my memory of it. He didn't play an awful lot, and that was at the time when they were just signing everybody. Yeah. So he was just one of many who came and went. Really, everybody's very excited. Yeah. And he left, but then he he scored in the Champions League final against Liverpool in 2005. That beautiful outside the right foot finish, um, and he was a brilliant technical player, which people he did get injured had a lot of time for. The lads were talking about him last night, actually, Joe and Kenny, and off the ball about Kenny was describing playing against Crespo. He was like and a ghost. Brilliant, like, yeah, it's like a ghost. He just, this movement was unbelievable. So I, I don't think he was seen as much of a flop, unlike the others that we've already mentioned. But like, for me, for the Lukaku thing is, you talk about the fullbacks, Chilwell and Reese James helping him out. I don't think it's so much that. I just think Thomas Tuchel is like, I don't really want him. No, he I don't doesn't. think I need him. He wants, he wants a better version no. of Timo Werner. And actually, he has loads of them. So if he just keeps picking... Maybe the team that he had last night with Mason Mount added in a sprinkling of that over the course of the rest of the season, they're going to be back as potential Champions League winners. Like, you would not back against them from this point forward in the competition. No, and I think... In any of those big games, you think Tuchel's going to be able to think his way through this, because... Yeah, like I th- but I do think, I mean, you, you were making the point last week that the last 16 in the Champions League has actually become a little bit of a joke in itself, yeah. that it, it is a, oh. a, an underwhelming round. It's not. Tonight will be great, obviously, United Atletico, because United are, aren't uh, in amazing shape, obviously, at the moment. But when you have a, a, a top-class team like Chelsea and the reigning champions, they, they waltz through these rounds. But like the Havertz-Pulisic-Ziesch front three is a really exciting one with and without the ball. Havertz, as your number nine, though, is probably going to miss a couple of chances that do come in for, for the odd time for Marcus Alonso, for example. And I know he missed a good chance early on last night, but everything else he gives you is probably worth it. Yeah, it is, totally, I think. And he's going to get better the more, the more he plays and the more he goes into this. Uh, so Fred is on the back of all the newspapers today. Uh, it's a bit strange, the midfielder told TNT Sports Brazil. 
when asked about having a temporary manager for the final six months of the season. I know in football it's important to get good results as soon as possible, but it's also important to have a long-term plan. Oh. It's a little bit hard for us not to have one. At the moment, it's all about the short-term goals. We don't know how it's going to be after the end of the season. Again, it seems like a very rational, reasonable position for a footballer to hold, but not maybe one that you speak about in public. No, move over, Sky Italia. TNT Sport Brazil <laughs> have uh, been the new home wreckers over the last 24 hours. I think what Fred, like, I mean, the headline there is Fred Ranić, uh, Ranić's role a bit strange. When I see that headline, I'm like, he's having a go at Ranić, but he, he's not at all, actually. He's just having a go at the club, and Ranić's almost just there as a bit of a lame duck. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I would say Ranić himself thinks it's a bit strange at this stage. Yeah. Because they still, he still has to have that big talk with uh, John Murta about, and Richard Arnold about the future of, of him at the club. I mean, what does this consultancy role actually mean? Like, Man- Manchester United, like, a really strange club this season. And they, they've been weird for nine years, but it's really weird this year. And it, at the moment, it feels like the last four weeks of your leaving search, where it's like the end of an era, and you're going into, like, voluntarily going into school to study if you want but everyone's going to go their separate ways and go to college or whatever they do. And at the moment, it's like there's loads of people are going to leave in the summer and everybody knows it. And we're just seeing out the final few months of the season. But also there's still ambiguity about which course people are taking or which college they're going to. Yeah, so, you, you don't have to. <laughs> it's, just like, it's all over the shop there. You don't have just to like talk to analogy. these people if you don't want to. It's great. Uh, tomorrow morning on OTBAM, Mexican filmmaker Michael Flatow joins us in studio on OTBAM, in studio on OTBAM, to chat about his new film, For Diego, it's a family drama based around the world of Mexican football, which has been nominated for an award at the Dublin Film Festival. It's filmed entirely on an iPhone and it looks beautiful. So uh, if you get a chance to go and see it, then uh, you definitely should. We have tickets to give away for the screener, which is tomorrow at 6pm. To be with a chance of winning, just get in touch and tell us what is your favourite football film and why. We'll pick our winners at the end of this morning's OTB AM. Owen controversially doesn't have an answer for this. I, I don't think there are very many good soccer films out there to be honest football films out there I think that they're Escape to Victory? Yeah th- I've never seen it I have I have seen Escape to Victory have you? and it's not great is it? What about Gold? <laughs> or Gold 2? Yeah sorry of That's course the, master, the, the Chisel's masterpiece of uh, Goal and uh, and Goal 2 Bend it like Beckham? Uh, oh I mean you're just you're just reeling off cinematic oh, masterpieces here I Bend it like Beckham's pretty good We have an answer for this you and I which is Dream Team should become a film I mean and we started reviewing that at the very start of that see this film. is my point season all, one to three all, all, of the, all of the greatness when it comes to uh, artistry when it, uh, on football is being confined to television Dream Team or documentary filmmaking like oh, yeah, Diego Maradona the two Escobars absolute yeah. masterpieces but when it comes to actual like I, Fever Pitch would be my favourite but that's just because I love Arsenal and that's the attachment there I don't think it's actually a very good movie who's in Fever Pitch? Uh, Colin Firth I, I've it's never like, seen it he's not a very credible football fan no they're not really even though that's the entire point about it, being like, wow, uh, this guy is completely obsessed with uh, with football. Um, I haven't seen that in a long time. I don't really, it has not stuck in my memory at no, all. I don't think it's, uh, I don't think it would be I, considered a classic. But I just don't think we talk about Dream Team enough. And neither do I, Colin. Do you have an actual answer as opposed to your... No, Dream Team. They signed Luke Davenport, the superstar striker for 40 million, and his eye fell out on the pitch. His eye just fell out. <laughs> <laughs> that's unbelievable drama. And then they, he had to retire from football. Imagine that happened. Imagine in real life. That would be the whole OTBAM, the whole show. Nothing else in the running order. This is true. Pablo and Diego are brothers who work as dishwashers at a local bar and play soccer in the afternoons. On the way home from practice one day, Diego is the victim of a hit and run. Pablo and his widowed mother are unable to pay for the surgeries needed to keep him alive, which prompts Pablo to recruit a team of eclectic friends and enter a soccer tournament to win the 100 grand peso prize money and pay for his brother's life-saving surgery. So it's a story about the overwhelming power of football. It's, you know, mankind, humankind against the odds. Yeah, it sounds good. Yeah, 
we're going to have the director in studio tomorrow talking to us about the movie. Uh, I will I will give you The Wonder of Bern. That's Wonder von Bern. is a movie about the 1954 World Cup and post-war Germany and how they um, beat the marvellous Magyars. Uh, again, it's the story of a, a boy and his father who's coming back from the war who was a, a German prisoner of war uh, in Russia and he comes back and, you know, obviously not really... But, a bit of PTSD going on that the football helps them to overcome and, and uh, you know fairly straightforward stuff but um, uh, dig it out it's worth it I'm sure you'll find it somewhere nine minutes past eight we're going to take a quick break we're back with Keith Wood OTB AM it's ten minutes past eight we're turning back to rugby Keith Wood is with us Keith good morning to you how are you getting on yeah very good very good um, we, we want to talk specifically about the front row to you at the start here uh, there's been a, a lot of discussion about our front row and how good they are and, and I'm not in any way diminishing how, how well that front row are playing as individuals and although obviously you know we're down to our second choice hooker for uh, the rest of the competition at the moment because Kelleher is out but um, we get a bit carried away with ourselves and are like oh we're the best in the world at this and there's no special prize for being best in the world even if we were best in the world but actually maybe we just need to rein ourselves in a bit and go well France France beat us up a bit South Africa are more than likely better than us and the true tests are still to come. Yeah, we do. We got excited. Um, understandably excited, I would have said, because as a unit, it, um, it looked very different from what we've had in the past. We looked very strong across it. But uh, well, I touched on this a, a couple of weeks ago, but the um, the amount of experience that's required to bring this front row up to the best in the world, it was said. And I, I, do you know what? I'm not sure who was saying that. I think that's a almost an excitable fan uh, idea that you go in that fashion. So if we if we even look at with Ronan Kelleher in there, he hasn't played a huge amount of games. Um, he has grown into the role. He's very comfortable in the role. He offers his potential is pretty extraordinary. And I would say the same for Dan Sheehan. Um, when I look at Andrew Porter, I would say that he's a really good front row forward who hasn't played a huge amount at loose head at international level. So he's going to relearn how to fall, how to get out of trouble, how to be imposing um, scrum time. And uh, so he isn't there yet either. Um, but I think he's fantastic. But I think, again, his potential is huge. And the only one that I would say that's world class is Tyke Furlong. And I do think he is he is way up there um, and consistently performs in that fashion. And one of the elements I'd say when you look at this is how long are those guys going to stay on the field? Um, because there is a fairly significant drop to the next level afterwards. And that doesn't matter for nearly every single game you'll play, with the exception of two or three. And um, and that's part of the, the issue we have. How can you bring those guys up to speed and drive their performance? But it isn't just about scrummaging, but that's pretty much what we're talking about at this stage. So on that point then, what can you do if you're Andy Farrell or someone involved in the Ireland setup to try and accelerate uh, the closing of the gap between, say, Tyg Furlong and, and whoever might be coming up behind him? Well, I think it's. I think we had closed the gap because I thought Andrew Porter was a really good heir apparent and had got enough of rugby. I actually thought Leinster looked after Porter incredibly well. 
Um, I thought they picked him young. He got picked for Ireland young. He got a lot of time. And anytime Tighe was injured, he was seemed to be getting a lot of game time there. And I thought they shared the load very, very well. Um, but whatever circumstances dictated that Farrell decided we'd be in a better position if we had um, uh, if if we had um, Porter playing across on the loose side, we've moved it. So there's been a bit of a gap from that. I think Finley Bealham has improved improved quite a lot actually um, there's talk of Tom O'Toole I just haven't seen enough of him to see whether he's there ready or not um, so an awful lot relies on keeping these guys as fit as you possibly can um, but again I'm going to just reiterate it it's, it is important for scrummaging for every game but the huge level of pressure we'd be under against France or South Africa is is particularly um uh, intense, but it's also rare. So <clears throat> I don't know that there's a huge amount more that you can do. I mean, in the last period of time, we've brought Ronan Kelleher into the squad, onto the team. Dan Sheehan has come into the squad, onto the team. Um, uh, I think we were discussing this in the in the autumn, but, um, you know, having Rob Herring there, he's an incredibly safe pair of hands. Yeah. But I think the other guys are... Have, are have a higher higher ceiling. And I I think everybody would agree with you, and it, it's clear that the the Ireland uh, selectors and Andy Farrell believe that too. With that in mind, right, knowing that Kelleher is out for the rest of the tournament, is there a world in which Dan Gian doesn't start this week for fear he gets injured ahead of the England game? Uh, n- not in my world, anyway. Um, look, I, I look. I hope that doesn't happen, and I think. I think this is the opportunity for Sheehan to start in a Six Nations game to try and play. Like, and Italy is is tough enough. Like, it's plenty tough. Um, and to try and get that level of experience that he should get the the buzz that goes with it all. Um, and like, he might struggle with a line out or two. There isn't a hooker in the world that has played takes. 15, 20 caps before you understand all those levels of pressures and get all those darts right all the time. We keep expecting it to be a fully formed uh, international star uh, in the first two or three caps. You know, it takes it takes a bit of time. We have to accept that fact. So, but I do think having having the benefit of having her, um, Herring on the bench, uh, that seems like the right sense and the right place to have it. Is there a world where we start the tests in the summer against South Africa without Furlong starting in in the first test on purpose where he's fit and we decide actually we're going to ex- give somebody that pressure that you're talking about that we're going to experience in the World Cup when we play South Africa and hopefully we get to a, a quarter final and we'll be up against the French or the All Blacks and at that stage it, there's a front row if Furlong is injured who has some experience of the absolute peak of test rugby um, I could I could see that happening, but I, I feel what the manner in which it's funny because we were we were fully intrigued with with um, with Farrell's uh, movement of of um, of Porter across the scrum. Like if 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 it happened in the morning, I think you could pick Andrew Porter at tight head if that was what was required, and I think he'd do an unbelievable job. Um, whether the rest of the players are to that level or not, I'm not sure. It may be the right thing to do is to um, is to put them in at that stage. Um, I would have said we struggled against France in the last fifteen minutes with the additional power that came off the French bench. 
um, almost against ours. I, I, I just think their bench was better than our bench. I think our bench did a decent job, if that makes sense. I, I don't know. I'd like look. I, I'm I'm always looking to try and get players to be picked to give them a chance under pressure to build the experience. I think it's important. Um, so you're trying to get the balancing act between winning a game, um, uh, building a winning attitude, and testing players. Uh, I think we are testing a lot of players at the moment. I don't think we're testing them starting test matches, but I do think we're getting a far better balance of the players that are coming off the bench have quite a lot of experience under difficult situations. I just think the team looks like it's progressing at the moment. And it does seem that at loose head you do have a nice situation at the moment anyway where Porter plays and then Keane Healy is, is well capable of of seeing the game out so it, it just seems that the missing part of the jigsaw assuming that Porter does stay on the left side of the scrum that that uh, it is just the, the, the back up to Furlong really um, Keith that that is like that, that piece of jigsaw is so vital over these next 18 months it is look the only issue that we have is is injury in terms of that I don't think we're looking at form or anything like that at all um it is on the injury stakes how how long can furlong last um look I'm intrigued with the manner in which the game is changing a small bit where players are staying on longer um so it may be less of a, a point but again it's only against a couple of the teams I think that it really that we're exposed so we need to cater for that yeah um, but we don't need to throw everything into that, if that makes sense. We just need to make certain that we can cater for it. Yeah, it's, and it's just there are so few opportunities to really mimic what is what that's going to be like between now and it happening. That um, you're trying to prepare for the eventuality, you're hoping for the best. But in the event of the worst, what do we do? What what's the break glass? in case of emergency situation and uh, I guess we're still just a little bit uncertain about that one last thing about this as well is that um, with the the change in rules laws are we likely to see more of the smaller prop re-emerging um, that, that there's been a, a huge focus in certainly in the discussion by World Rugby on the the shock and weight that the props in particular were suffering and they're trying to recalibrate this. So is, is technique, Is there, I guess what I'm asking here in a roundabout way is, is technique going to be more important than bulk over the next couple of seasons if the laws are policed the way they say they're going to police them? Well, I, I often think when they change the laws as to what happens and because there was no hit in the scrum, no, and because you can't fight to get into a position to where you're strong, um, you are dealing then with people who are incredibly strong all the time and they can't really get that nudge too much into an angle to where you can put yourself into a strong position. Um, I, I think there may need to be further changes in the laws to, to depower some of that weight or strength that's going across it because it looks to be fairly incredible at the moment. Um, uh, I just was looking at, again at the French game and looking at the pressure that was going through um, Dan Sheehan and um, it was being very targeted two players targeted on it you rarely see that as much anymore but now it's coming back in again and France went after him and it was quite interesting because Sheehan is tall and <clears throat> you get a tight head in underneath so there's a technique that's required to make certain those things don't happen whether the laws impact on that technique or not, I don't know. It's it's funny, I, I started thinking about whether the players I played with, whether they would have done well in in, in um, 
uh, under the present rules. And strangely, when I look at two tightheads and John Hayes and Claw, I actually think John Hayes would relish the way the laws are at the moment because he didn't have to he didn't have to cross the gap early to get into the right position. He'd be in the right position. And actually, I think Claw might struggle somewhat in it because Claw was brilliant at getting across that line and getting into a position where he was comfortable and that would he'd have been negated from that. Now he'd have figured his way around it. But but it's it's just interesting. But I, I still don't know that the law is right where it is um, at the moment. And I do see the break as making a bit of a difference, but I don't know quite how much of a difference it's making. So look, I think the lawmakers are... are they're fighting really hard at the moment to try and keep the game safer and uh, and trying to make certain that there are no injuries within it. But the pressure seems to be very significant. When you look at the rest of the pack then, Keith, are, are you interested in any other constellations in terms of Ireland getting the most, I guess, out of out of technique or, or, or power even when it, when it comes to that area of the pitch? Like you've got Gordon Darcy in the Irish Times this morning saying at some point I wonder if Coombs, Caelan Doris and Jack Conan will at once be on the pitch. And he's not for once a second suggesting to drop Josh van der Fleer. He just wants to see how that would play out. And then there's obviously some suggestion that maybe Ty Byrne could be chanced as a, as a number six at some point in the future. When it comes to those sort of areas, what experiments would you like to see play out? Yeah, I, it, look, that's taking a view that we need to match power with power. And um, for me, I think that's a foolhardy view. I don't know that we have those particular types of athletes that we can do it as a purely power game. Um, I would like to see Coombs on the field, um, but I'd like to see the Coombs of last year. And I don't think he's got back to the, the zip that he had last year, that power um, that he had um, pretty much in his first and second year when he was playing. Um, uh, he just seems to be a step off the mark at the moment. So it's whether that was um, uh, coming back after all that COVID story or or coming back to uh, just getting enough of games under his belt or coming back to trying to play in a style that isn't one of rugby. They're all different components. But um, when I saw him last year, he is one of the very few power type athletes that we have in the back row you'd like to see it Ty Byrne I can see in the back row all day um, because he's an incredible poacher of the game it's not entirely power oriented but it is technique oriented but again I'd still be looking at an Irish pack of forwards that you'd have a lot of power in the front row um, bit of power in the second row but for the most part I'd want my second row my back row everywhere in the field turning up everywhere because for me the French loss showed us the manner in which we could seriously destabilize a team that was an awful lot bigger than we were by running and running them ragged. Now, if we'd kept our concentration a little bit more and hadn't given them such a, a lead in the first half, I think we could have got there. If it had gone on another five minutes, I think Ireland would have won. So I think that's the route to it, rather than saying, yes, we have to fall into this trap of huge, big, powerful players all the time. Because we just don't have an, you know, a conveyor belt of them. We have a few of them, but if you're trying to build around that style, I'd rather build around the style we are at the moment, which, you know, is exciting to watch, but also moves players all the way around the field. So, I think that's the better route for us, and I think that's the way we're going. Um, one other question that we need to address in terms of selection, and it's a little bit similar to what would life be like if uh, Furlong got injured. We we got a glimpse of what life would be like without Johnny Sexton last week, and it was pretty good. There's some talk that Sexton might start against Italy, which seems wild 
and mad. But yet that that talk is is real. And what would your what would your instinct be if you see the team named in Sexton starts? Um, I I think it would be an opportunity missed. <clears throat> I still it's funny. I think with the way the game sorry with the way Farrell has changed up the structure with the way there's more um, ball handlers in the midst of it, more first receivers in the midst of it. I actually think we've put additional longevity onto Johnny Sexton's career. That's not a critic. That's not a negative. That's a huge positive because the way we were playing, I thought we were at a huge risk. I think the risk is less now, Um, but we know what Johnny can do. And I think I'd like to see Joey get more game time. Um, I thought he played very well. I thought he played very well for a guy who'd played no rugby. Now mind a guy who'd had injuries for the last three or four years. I just thought he he no, he made mistakes and he crabbed across the field and he was a bit deep at times and there was a whole variety of other things. Can you just imagine what's going through that young fella's head having not played any rugby at all and playing against France? I thought the courage he showed in the game was incredible. So um, I'd like to see him get another run of it. I still see Johnny as our number one ten. Um, but uh, I'd like to see Joey get another go. Um, the only thing I would have said and that in this particular game is I'd like to see Craig Casey on the bench because if he's to be the guy that's that's our third scrum half, he needs to be playing as well. And we need to see him in an international jersey and I'd give him a run off the bench as well. So um, he'd be able to get up to that pressure very quickly and I think we're far enough away for World Cup to be able to see that. How important is this game in terms of the selection for the England game? Are they totally isolated? You, you just you get whatever you want out of this game and then you have a week break so you can do whatever you want in training and if everybody's fit, you pick on form in training the following week. Yeah, I, I hope it's not picked in... I, I hope the English team isn't picked already and I know we'll be very close to it. But um, one thing we have noticed with, with Farrell is that... When players perform, they tend to get a pat in the back and also the jersey. So um, I think it's important for the win. I think it's important for um, how we go about the game, how our structure is, how players raise their game. You know, there was a huge emotional high and a, a kind of beating against France. So you have to, you know, get back on that horse very, very quickly. But um, look, I think every time you don an Irish jersey, you should be donning it to hold it. So if you give it to Joey, you want Joey to knock it out of the park to say, wow, we have a quandary now against England. And uh, that's the, the sort of circumstances. Now, you, of course, you put it into the mix that you're playing Italy, who are shipping points left, right and centre. Um, it'll still be very tough and still be very physical, but you're looking for shape and control. That's uh, that's what happens in here, and uh, and then it just gives us further options. I mean, I'm, I'm I'm at the moment where I'm just looking at at what Farrell has done this year, this season in particular since the autumns. There is a comfortable change in how Ireland are playing. Um, I, that's not a steady state and it's going to go somewhere else I'd be interested to see where it's going to go to and I think that comes down to performances for players putting their hands up to say pick me um, it's why I think the Gavin Coombs conversation about having him on the field probably isn't right at the moment because he hasn't he hasn't showed the form to be picked whereas he did show it last year and I'd like to have seen him picked last year Yeah and, and look maybe he would have been if um, 
things had been normal and they'd had full training camps and the opportunity to exactly. sit down and have those conversations and, and just that normal ebb and flow of getting to know people, uh, which I'd say has actually held back some players um, in, in ways that maybe we'll only find out about after uh, COVID is gone. Keith, great stuff. Thanks a million. Cheers, gents. It's Keith Wood with us this morning. Bang on half past eight. What do you want to see? Uh, I like. I mean, it's. I think when we go back to the start of the conversation, we it is slowly becoming possibly the most important element of this entire Ireland squad: the ability to find a backup in those two propositions. Because not only of the fact that the starters are very, very good, but because you've got an aging Keen Healy and also. Um, a and other, which is a problem. The, the like uh, the fact that we have uh, a resorting to Andrew Porter as a reasonable option here in the mind of Keith would probably tells you all you need to know. I think he he did his depth chart and Porter was second yeah. on it. Yeah, at tight head, and I think that like what we need to do is find out what would happen if if uh, if Furlong was gone. Like I, I I think we should be giving Ty Furlong six months off. Like, you know, we should be doing what they did in to win the World Cup but in New Zealand. But like, just just to they like, gave their key players time off. But to, to can like, I mean, I I agree with that. But also, it does seem that there is always a next man up with, with the, the vast majority of these positions. So you can be like, oh, Jack Carty, for example, is playing so well for Conte. Love to see what he can do as a backup to Sexton. Who like who is the person that we're excited to see at at Titus? So I think there is there is a genuine depth. Uh, problem there as well as an opportunity problem when it comes to, to this Ireland team I think in that position so that's that's the alarm bell for me uh, yeah okay I, I, like maybe though if we gave them six months off everybody has to play you know but I mean even for their provinces well uh, like you think that that would send shockwaves throughout the rest I of Ireland everybody would be like well okay right we, we have to find somebody here now like it's must necessity is the mother of invention like, I think that that opportunity is there right now to play 20 minutes at the end of the game like I mean that, not that that's like as big a card as, as being a starter for Ireland potentially at a test level over the next little while or start, start, start the person that you want to, to do that and then bring Furlong off bring Furlong off for the last 20 minutes yeah like that's that's certainly one way of, of finding you know, it out it's like look we, we know Tuck Furlong's going to be our starter in the big games down the line but yeah. at the moment what we need to do is make sure that and you can dress it up as like oh great, great competition here everybody knows okay well, you see what you're doing but that's fine yeah it does feel that this weekend has taken on a little bit of added importance with regards to talent identification because of the fact that this summer is in New Zealand the, the one problem with all this is that the entire organisation is based on winning points and money in this tournament like and so therefore all these conversations that we're having about like long term planning are nonsensical to the people inside the organisation we're like you haven't a clue you haven't a clue this is like existential was the word that Philip Brown used in that uh, in, in that interview that we did with him uh, in the middle of lockdown about the money that they need to survive and the difference between finishing fourth and fifth is a million quid so and your job is to make sure that you get at least fourth and third and second and ideally first, right? And I'm sure there are incentives to do that. What are you doing? You're picking. You're picking far long. Of course, yeah. You're probably picking Sexton because because of the short termism that's baked in, and it's very difficult for the Ireland coaching ticket to go. Actually, you know what? I'm going to forgo or I'm going to risk this, and I'm going to take the ire of uh, uh, whoever it is on the basis that actually I know long term what's best. There's a good piece in the papers conversation on, on Sunday where Shane Keegan was talking about Bernard Jackman uh, and he was saying that Cheka came in yeah. and Cheka was so rich that he didn't actually need to work for Leinster he wanted to work for Leinster and so people would tell him what to do and he'd be like no I'm just doing what I'm going to do and it ultimately was successful for them now by a hair's breadth it, it broke for him and, and the story was written and that great era starts 
Um, but he was free. Mm. And the IRFU do not want people to be free within the organisation. They want them to do exactly what they're told. It's a super conservative organisation. And so Andy Farrell, I think, has done a remarkable job to get to this point. And I would hope that the selection against England is as brave as the selection will be against Italy. And that actually we see Carberry start both games. Because that's the right thing for the long term. Like, in fairness, it would play into what Andy Farrell's philosophy has been. And Keith touched on it there that he is rewarding form at the moment. Like, James Lowe's back this weekend. Like, do you expect him to suddenly be ahead of Mac Hansen in the pecking order? I, I actually don't. They can both play, obviously. I think that there's a possibility they both play this weekend. Yeah, so and do I. It's a referendum for who starts on the left wing. That, and, and Conway must be like, ah, oh, come on, what have I done? Yeah. You know? And he'd be right to think that. But I, I think that he does reward for him. And I think that Joey Carberry, if, if he steers the ship well this weekend, I think that he will be rewarded against England. So, like, that's not necessarily finding things out at that point. That actually becomes a situation where Andy Farrell is just like, I'm being consistent with rewarding form. And I think Carberry's in such a good position on that front. Hopefully. OTBAM brought to you by Gillette. Good morning. Start with Gillette. Put your best face forward with our new and improved razors. Uh, Mike Bassett, England manager. Excellent shout. Is it a good film? Yeah. I haven't seen it. Like, I mean, if you're, like, it, it, so th- I will re, uh, revert my uh, topic to serious football films. There is no good ones. Right. So you've already come off your high horse. Take, yeah. Your high horse has been tripped up. The turntables have turned. So Mike Bassett, England manager, good football movie. Uh, Cavanagh says Shaolin Soccer is another footy film. I have not seen Shaolin Soccer. Neither have I. Uh, and Chris Cal says, I thought the Arsenal Stadium mystery would be Owen's favourite. Filmed at Highbury in the 1930s. The then manager and some of the players appeared in it. And the biography is a vintage British thriller, thriller in which a Scotland Yard inspector investigates the murder of amateur footballer John Doyce during a charity soccer match against the Arsenal at Highbury. Much of the film was shot at Highbury itself with appearances from Arsenal manager George Allison and members of the team. That sounds good. So that sounds dream team-esque. We could, we could remake that. that. Maybe that's what uh, Hollywood's good at, that kind of stuff. It is 8.35. If you want to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. 087-9180-180 is the WhatsApp number. Uh, you can also get in touch with us um, on the YouTube channel. Just leave a comment and we'll get to it in a second. Uh, John Duggan is with us. John, good morning to you. How are you? Karen Owen, you well? What is going on? Oisin Murphy, so the Killarney jockey, 26 years of age, champion jockey on the flat in the UK for the last three years, uh, banned for the year effectively, so you can forget about 2023, banned from riding for 14 months, backdated to last December for COVID and alcohol breaches. So he went to Greece in September 2020, didn't self-isolate, didn't tell the truth about his whereabouts. Two failed tests as well for alcohol. Um, he said that trying to win the title and breaking COVID protocols led to his drinking becoming out of control, fined £31,000, not contesting the charges. Uh, previously served a three-month ban for a positive cocaine test in France, which he claimed was via environmental contamination through sexual contact with the user of the drug. This is some of the quotes from Machine Murphy. Very honest, to be fair. My drinking had become out of control. I've caused a great amount of damage to my reputation along the way. I couldn't undo the past, and that initial lie that led to all the deceit. Now I'm sober. I don't think I would have made those mistakes. I can't go back in time. They were grave errors. I dealt with success and failure. The same drink was the rock I perished on. People had told me this could happen, but I failed to avoid it. I fell into the trap. The day I picked up the championship trophy, there was no element of joy in it for me. I admit to all the breaches. I just wish I could have dealt with them better. So we wish him well in his recovery. So the the um, he went to Mykonos and they got added to the list of places you weren't allowed to go and you'd have to self-isolate for 14 days and that would have obviously derailed significantly in, in his view the opportunity to win the championship so then he told everybody he was actually in Lake Como which wasn't on the banned list of, of places to travel but obviously if you post on your Instagram it says where you are and so people worked out he says he's in Como 
social media is telling us he's in uh, Greece and they caught him that way and I think he fessed up straight away uh, sorry he didn't fess up straight away he maintained the lie for ages and ages until actually they were like okay give us your boarding pass and send us the details and at that point he was like fair cop so it does sound like the alcohol abuse has been an issue in the past with him and it does sound like this just kind of brought everything to a head Oshim isn't actually somebody that we are very familiar with in Ireland it's kind of like he is low key one of our best and most successful sports people like what he is doing uh, in flat racing in England is phenomenal you know and, and the rewards for that are absolutely phenomenal but he's, he's beating out some of the greatest jockeys of all time to win the flat championship and we should know more about him he should be higher profile in Ireland John I think it's strange because Kieran Fallon and Pat Eddery would have been stars back in the day in the 70s and 80s and 90s and they were both from Ireland Kieran Fallon from Clare and, and Pat from I believe it was I believe it was from Dublin but flat jockeys have had uh, troubles like they've had struggles like it's it, there's something very unnatural about it when you consider it when you think about the like all the, the saunas and the wasting and the fasting and being at nine stone and uh, and, and constantly and, losing yeah and, and, and all the travel and like the, this, the the nature of the race is the fact that they're over so quickly and then you're just constantly on the move and Richard Hughes has struggled and Kieran Fallon has struggled um, one of the best talks I ever saw was on YouTube it's on YouTube right now Johnny Jockey Matters Addiction and Recovery and Johnny Murcia the great Johnny Murcia speaking about his struggles with alcohol and it's worth worth worth, worth a watch I think he spoke about how he's never consistently sober for 10 years. Like, he'd be sober for nine months or 11 months or six months, but never consistently until he got it under control. And then he was consistent for the last 15 years of his career. So um, it's it's a tough sport. I agree with you. I think Oshin Murphy sometimes is just a, a bit under the limelight. But I think flat racing has gone that way. I think flat racing generally has gone a bit under the radar in the last few years, both in terms of what we do with, with the Valley Doyle here, world uh, stars, and then what Oshin Murphy's done. Well, like, remember, Oshin Murphy went to the UK as a teenager. And made it. Yeah. And has won three titles in a row. So I hope, hopefully now, he'll get the help he needs. I think he says he is already. And by the time he gets back next year, he'll be, um, he'll be on, the, on the road to, to winning titles again. Yeah, the statement said that he's, he's in AA and he's, he's dry at the moment and he's in therapy. And we wish him the very best. As, as you say, like it, 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 it's a series of bad decisions that were compounded through addiction and uh, when addiction gets hold of people it makes them do terrible things so we wish him all the best and, and, and a recovery it's a very stern punishment he won't ride this year like to be the champion and to have that taken away is going to be difficult for him but again like incredible levels of success that he's reached at this point but still with that no sense of fulfilment or happiness coming to him and you really hope he, he manages to find that and, and I hope to, we get to know him better as a, a sports loving public because you know, there's a story there that um, deserves to be told and deserves to be heard. And, and I think when he does speak about it, it'll, it'll be very interesting. Uh, it'll be compelling. And hopefully he makes the same kind of comeback that Johnny Murta was able to do. It is 8.41. We just wanted to bring you that story. It obviously happened yesterday afternoon. Some other stuff happening in the last 24 hours, John. Phil? You want to talk with Phil? I met Phil 20 years ago. And... I made a rookie mistake. I was looking at 23. I just started my career in this game. And I made this mistake. Like cynicism and also professionalism wouldn't allow me to make it then subsequently in my career in that I asked for Phil's signature uh, because I was obsessed with Phil Mickelson as a, as a player. So I met him at the Open and I just asked for his signature. And I kind of walked away feeling quite small. Did he say no? He did it, but it was kind of a, you know, he kind of like almost laughed and said, thank you, sir because it went up in a kind of meek way and asked him for a signature. So, And did he know you were a journalist? 
I don't think so, no. Right. No, no. Uh, so I was a little bit, never meet your heroes is the is the phrase, isn't it? Um, but yeah, no, Phil, was, Phil has been the most exciting uh, golfers of, what, this generation. Like, he uh, won six majors, you know, played the game in such a swashbuckling, gambling way. But um, things have seemed to go wrong in the last while. And um, it's amazing how uh, somebody can fall from grace from winning the PJ Championship last year at the age of 50, becoming the oldest major winner in the world, to um, being like uh, effectively now um, having to take a break from the sport for his own head. Um, I thought what Rory McIlroy said the other day was absolutely fascinating. Um, I don't want to kick a man when he's down, and then he absolutely went off the top rope like a wrestler. And that said a lot to me about maybe the way Phil is viewed in the locker room. Definitely, it's open season now, and people are coming out. And um, so this is what Phil said last week. They're scary bleep about the the Saudis to Alan Chipnook of the Firepit Collective. We know they killed Jamal Khashoggi and have a horrible record on human rights. They execute people over there for being gay. Knowing all this, why would I even consider it? Because it's a once in a lifetime opportunity to reshape how the PJ Tour operates. The following days, then you had the deluge of people going the opposite way. Dustin Johnson, Bryson Shampo all committing their uh, futures to the PGA Tour. So Phil Mickelson comes out then with this statement last night. Although it doesn't look this way now, given my recent comments, my actions throughout this process have always been with the best interest of golf, my peers, sponsors and fans. There is the problem with off-the-record comments being shared out of context without my consent. But the bigger issue is that I use words I sincerely regret that do not reflect my true feelings or intentions. It was reckless. I offended people. I'm deeply sorry for my choice of words. I'm beyond disappointed. Well, make every effort to self-reflect and learn from this. I go on. Uh, the past 10 years, though, I felt pressure and stress slowly affecting me at a deeper level. I know I've not been at my best and desperately need some time away to prioritise the ones I love most and work on being the man I want to be. Now, Alan Chipnook, who's got this book coming out, I've never been as excited about a book, apart from my own book, as I'm going to be about this book that Alan Chipnook brings out in May, about the unauthorised biography of Phil. And Alan Chipnook vehemently, who's a respected reporter, says those comments were on the record. They were not off the record. There was no discussion of them being off the record. Also, Phil adds here, my experience with Live Golf Investments, this is the Saudis, Greg Norman, has been very positive. I apologise for anything I said that was taken out of context. The specific people I've worked with are visionaries and have only been supportive. So... Yeah, um, this thing has just completely crashed and burned. And there's a degree of feeling maybe out there with Phil that Phil um, sometimes wants to be the smartest guy in the room. And on this occasion, he hasn't been. Like, obviously, you've seen uh, Shipnook's tweets this morning, obviously, vehemently denying that that it was off the record. He's updated a piece on the Firepick Collective saying that he sent me a text on the morning the excerpt dropped. He was less than thrilled. Just as in the statement he released on Thursday, Phil made a half-hearted attempt at revisionist history trying to say our talk had been a private conversation, but I shut that down real quick. He knew I was working on a book about him and asked to speak, saying he wanted to discuss media rights and his grievances with the PGA Tour, both of which inevitably led back to Saudi. If the subject of a biography phones the author, the content of that conversation is always going to inform the book unless it is expressly agreed otherwise. And he says not once in our text or when we got on the phone did Phil request to go off the record and I never consented to it. If he had asked, I would have pushed back hard as this was obviously material I wanted for the book. And he says Mickelson simply called him and opened up a vein to claim now that the comments were off the record is false and duplicitous. So um, he is uh, not not having this. I, I don't care about the row about the on the record, off the record, to be honest. that's For me, that's all inside baseball stuff. Uh, I, the, the bit where people are shocked by what Mickelson said, I also it's not shocking at all that Mickelson said this what what it does is it completely reveals several different things and it's a, it's a bit 
it's a bit nuanced because the PGA Tour probably are not a good bunch of people. Like the the PGA Tour as an organization have probably not treated the golfers the way the golfers deserve to be treated. There is there is merit in Mickelson looking to disrupt what the PGA Tour, how they have behaved, how they have amassed money for themselves on the basis of being able to put on an event when actually the only reason anybody wants to watch the event is because Tiger and Phil and Rory and DJ and Bryson and whoever is there. Like, the power should be with the entertainers. The power should be with the creators. Instead, the power is with the record label pressing out the one cent record that they're charging 20 quid for. Like, all of the money is being generated and isn't being redistributed. Now, it's being redistributed a bit more, and it's hard to make the case for multimillionaires to get more, but it's not just the multimillionaires. It's the guys who are struggling to make the cut who actually never make money from golf, but who are there and who are entertaining stories in themselves. So the, 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 the bones of that, that's all true. How they chose to go about it by getting into bed with the Saudis, when he says they know and everybody else knows about what the Saudi regime are up to, that's fascinating because it's the, it's the greed revealed it's the we will do absolutely anything to help ourselves to get what we want and that is at the heart of most capitalism let's face it that is exactly how uh, people think when it comes to making money that's what the greed is good that is Gordon Gecko. It doesn't really matter. Nothing matters apart from us getting what we want. Uh, I don't really care about what happened uh, to Jamal Khashoggi. I don't really care about what happens to uh, gay people getting executed. That's what that's what he's saying when he's saying I'm I'm going to use these people, the Saudis, to get what I want. It's like it's just how leverage works. It's just business. And you know what? There's a lot of America that's gone. Well, Phil, you shouldn't have got caught, but like, I like your chutzpah. Uh, and that's why this is very interesting. And what plays out over the next period of time is going to be interesting because the Saudi, the Saudi investors aren't going to go away. Well, they bought into the Asian tour, as I said last week on the show. They put a huge amount of money into the Asian tour, which is world ranking points. And that's going to be there for, they're not going away. MBS, does he go away? I don't think so. Um, the thing with Phil is, though, Phil has always been the apple pie guy. You know, he's been the, the smiling guy. He's been the people's champion. He's been the Arnold Palmer of our contemporary age with Tiger Woods all cold and aloof. And now it looks like the whole thing has flipped. Um, but people have short memories. And I think the reaction to Phil uh, from his fans will, will not waver. Because Phil is hugely popular in America. And um, I think people, as I said, have short memories. If Tiger Woods can come back from what he came back from, Phil can come back from this. Look, we're way over time in this, but it is time for Virtual Insanity. Power drive. Oh, wow. Where are we going this week? How did we get on last week? Tied for 10th, tied for 13th, tied for 15th. Nothing. Hit the crossbar. Hit the crossbar. Um, you're talking about guys who struggle, and that's generally all I'm tipping on these uh, virtual insanity things. Look, I was off yesterday, so I've literally just, these are very hot. I've just decided on these. I haven't read the article yet. The article is going to go up in the next couple of hours on otbsports.com and on the OTB app to kind of justify the rationale what I'm doing here, right? For the Honda Classic, Patrick Carrington's one of the four starts in Florida tomorrow at PGA National. On the Bermuda grass, bit of wind blowing. The Bear Trap, par 70, really, really tough course. Um, here we go. So Keith Mitchell, 350 each way. Keith Mitchell, 33 to 1, has won this tournament before and is playing really well recently. Keith Mitchell, in the last few starts, hits the ball really, really well off the tee. He's going to be a star, I think, this year, Keith, Keith Mitchell. He's the headline tip for 350 each way. 33 to 1. Three each way, Tommy Fleetwood at 28 to 1. Overpriced two years ago in the slot, I tipped Tommy Fleetwood in this at 12 to 1. He's now 28 to 1. I think he's coming back 
into form. I think a win in America could finally happen for Tommy Fleetwood soon. He played well in Saudi, played well in Dubai. I think he's coming back into the groove, Tommy Fleetwood, who has been third and fourth in this before, 28 to 1 for three each way. Three each way, Denny McCarthy at 50 to 1. Uh, the best putter on our tour in 2019 2020 is hitting the ball better now, has played well on the west coast of America, was third in this last year. Denny McCarthy, you got taste at 50 to 1 for three each way. And then the, the outsiders are going to pick three of them um, at 100 to 1, Grayson Sig for 150 each way, at 150 to 1, Vince Whaley for 1 euro 50 each way, and at 200 to 1, Nick Hardy for 1 euro 50 each way. An outsider might win this, not, not many of the world's top players in it. Wacken Neiman's in it, but he's like he won last week, he's got all the media duties. So Nick Hardy, Vince Whaley, Grayson Sig, but the top three. Denny McCarthy, Tommy Fleetwood, and the headliner is Keith Mitchell to get some each-way bread this week on Virtual Insanity. All right, good stuff, John. Uh, if you could stay there, because we're going to ask you about this. Uh, tomorrow morning on OTBAM, Mexican filmmaker Miguel Flato uh, joins us in studio to talk about his new film. It's called For Diego. It's a family drama based around the world of Mexican football. It's been nominated for an award at the Dublin Film Festival, and there is a screener tomorrow night at 6pm. We have tickets for that to uh, give away. We're going to pick our winners at the end of this morning's OTBM. All you've got to do is tell us about your favourite football movie. So, uh, it needs to be a movie. You can't have the entry that um, Colin Bowie wanted where it was Dream Team, which wasn't a movie. Uh, Jeff on Twitter says The Damned United Brian Clough at Leeds was a decent movie then again any story on Brian Clough is a good listen obviously uh, The Damned United was the subject of legal action by John Giles who um, was featured in the original text of the book and then he won his legal action and uh, subsequently um, his name got changed to The Irishman and so there was a lot of debate around whether or not it was fair to have a completely fictionalised version of real events and if 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 you think it wasn't then you, you can't access that movie and you can't access the book if you can park that there's a there's an amazing depth and power to the book and the movie but it's hard sometimes to divorce these two things so uh, you got to you got to watch that and make your own mind up on that one. John, anything for this? Maradona. Best uh, football movie I've seen um, because it really gives an insight into the suffocating nature of religious obsession and fame. I thought it was brilliantly made. Some of the footage is fantastic. But the pressure a human being can be under when you're just seen as this god and eventually Maradona asks the people of Naples to choose between god and country and they say, you can't do that. We've got to choose our country and then everything turns against him. And to me, especially, it's quite poignant given the fact that he's passed now. Maradona is the best football film I've seen. There are not that many great football films, I would say. I think The Two Escobars is great. Once again, a very, very tragic uh, watch and very difficult watch. But the Hillsborough movie is on the 30 for 30 is excellent. Uh, they'd be the ones I'd be, I'd be recommending, Maradona being the number one. Nothing fictional? Um, Escape to Victory, is that fictional? Uh, um no, I just I, 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 I much prefer to read books, but I, Maradona kind of blew me away in, in recent years. But I haven't seen Fever Pitch or, or any of those. I couldn't obviously watch that because I'm not an Arsenal fan. Um, it's but, mostly about pain, to be honest. I think you might enjoy it. Well, you know, I go through enough <laughs> of that. Before I go, were successful. I go through enough point. of that in real life every week uh, watching Spurs, apart from last Saturday. The, uh, the, we didn't talk to you about Alan Rowe. We'll do that again uh, with you uh, when we get a bit more time. The latest episode of The Football Pod with Paddy Andrews and James O'Donoghue is available to listen to right now. Uh, the best place to get it is on the OTB Sports app, but it's available wherever you get your podcast. You can subscribe to it, you can search for The Football Pod, or you get it on the OTB GA feed. Here they are talking about how Dublin have slipped back towards the pack with um, James wishing that maybe he'd been able to step away as well. It's interesting how human... 
Dublin have become in the space of six, seven, eight months. If Dublin are missing Con and Kilkenny in Championship later in the year, it's the same Mas- as Kerry missing Clifford O'Shea. Yeah. It's the same as, you know, Mayo losing the likes of a Tommy Conroy or Killian O'Connor last year. It's such a huge blow now. Whereas before, as you said, Jack McCaffrey, Rory O'Carroll, Paul Mannion could all walk out and it wouldn't make a difference. But that wasn't normal. No. Like at the time you're, you're in it, you don't appreciate You probably you don't appreciate it. It's just like, okay, we'll deal with this. Someone else will step in. The normal thing is that if key players are missing, it has an impact. We look at Donegal without Langan and Murphy. They will struggle without those players. You look at Kerry without Clifford and O'Shea, they will struggle. And Dublin are in the exact same situation. You take out a, a Fenton and a Kieran or, or Khan and, and Fenton. That has a massive impact on, on Dublin being successful or not. And that's normal. That's what you expect. Whereas the three or four years there where it, it, it didn't have an impact if guys were injured. No one cared. We didn't talk about injuries or suspensions or anything like that. Whereas that's the reality now. And you look at the All-Ireland Champions last, last weekend, you take out the four best players. That, that's the reality. The top teams, if you're missing two or one or two of your key guys, yeah. you are up against it to try and win the championship. James, the Dublin, Dublin are the same. It strikes me that if a reigning Kerry footballer of the year or a Kerry All-Star had decided to take a year out of football, he'd have to be smuggled out of the county before the news broke. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. That never happened to you, did it? Did anyone ever take a year out or step away? Or no. You were in a different space, I suppose, your team, but that, that never happened, did it? I couldn't imagine anyone walking, walking from the panel with the view, say, fair enough, does Mannion ever want to go back? Who knows? But in Kerry, I think that... I know. <laughs> he doesn't. I know. Yeah. But in Kerry, I think that you couldn't leave the dressing room and try and get back in then. Do you know? I just don't think that would be an option. Was it a, was it a, is it a dressing room thing? I suppose it is. You know, you're, you're all in it together. And if you kind of... If you say, look, I'm taking... I'm, taking um, some time away it's hard then to, to, uh, to get back in I suppose were you faced with that predicament yeah I looking back now I probably wish I did take a year out but that was more for body surgery, surgery and things yeah it wouldn't have been a a choice to do it like but it would have been it would have definitely been the right thing but it's a very hard decision to make because as we said in the other the other week, you're greedy, you know. You're only in there for five or six years, maybe, at playing at your best. You need to take every chance. Mm. Like it was easier probably for the boys to, to walk away when they had six alarms in their back pocket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, typically great stuff there from this week's edition of the Football Pod. Paddy Andrews talks about the matter-of-fact way that Jim would walk in and go, oh, Rory, Rory's gone for the year. And everybody would be like, okay, grand, off we go. There was no big kind of hoo-ha or pomp and circumstance or totally emotional kind of, oh, it's happening. It's just like, all right. You can do that when you have a panel that they had. Sure, yeah. Uh, like um, unbelievable depth there. And I think maybe they, um, the, the the system that they had around that time as well meant that they could kind of plug and play a little bit with, with whoever was in. And um, I guess maybe we just kind of underappreciated just how, how good those players actually were who were in that system. Yeah, I think it's a perfect coalescence of all-time greats and a system that gets the best out of them. 
Yeah, and uh, like I mean, Do you remember though Paul Flynn talking about we thought we were saving football uh, the year that the, the Donegal game happened. Um, yeah, yeah. What was he saying? Well, just that um, it was a, a crushing blow to them to lose that game because they thought they were saving the game from the blanket defence. They were doing things properly. That there was like a there was a, a deeper uh, cause that they felt they were part of, and then. Donegal beat them and it was like screw the cause we need to win mm. they should go back to that way before the. they should go back to that mentality I think they should try and create some sort of idea that they are trying to save football because they might end up saving themselves in the process this year that's what Billy Joel was saying that um, the team isn't capable of producing the mechanical style that ground out everybody and that won games for them with the 10-15 minutes of keep ball when they were three points up and you're like mm. there's, no, there's no jeopardy here Um but obviously the, the players were able to do that. They, they don't have at the moment. So the Camortis Pell Paddy O'Shea takes place this weekend. Kerry footballer Paddy Clifford joined OTV reporter Ashley O'Reilly for a chat ahead of it. I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by Kerry footballer Paddy Clifford for the 33rd edition of the little sponsored Camortis Pell Paddy O'Shea. 14 men and women's teams from across the country are going to make their way to Ventry this weekend. And even Danny O'Reilly from the Coronas is going to be there playing with Temple Oak. So, Paddy, it's a, it's a massive weekend in Kerry. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it should be a great weekend um, to everyone. To everyone's coming down for it. And so what is it about uh, the Comortis? Uh, a lot of teams come down and play. I know playing with Kerry yourself, you, you're not allowed to be involved. But um, have you heard good stories that go crack happens there? Oh, I have, yeah, yeah. I'd say um, the crack is very good. The football is very, uh, very competitive as well. Um, the games will be very enjoyable, but yeah, the, there's there's a great buzz around and <clears throat> that'd be a great crack at. And for you this year, um, playing with Kerry, there's new management in with Jack O'Connor. How's it all going and how would you describe his management style? Um, yeah, it's going well. Um, we're enjoying it. We're we're trying to just um, improve every every day. Every day we go out. Um, he's a good, yeah. He's a very good man manager, um, and obviously very tactically astute as well. So, um, no, every, everything's going well so far. We're just trying to keep it going. And has anything changed majorly from last year? Um, is it just a freshness that he's brought in? Yeah, that's it. Just a, just a freshness, kind of um, a few new ideas that. Um, I suppose it will happen when any when any management team changes. Um, but yeah, kind of just a bit of freshness and, and a few new ideas. And at the moment, you've drew Wickle there in the first round. You, you bet Dublin and Donegal. Do you feel that you're improving on things every game? Uh, yeah, we're hoping to. Hopefully, we we are improving. We 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 be we'd be hopeful that we can just keep on keep on an upward curve and. Uh, use these league games to try a few things and get us ready for the championship. And just on last year, if I can just mention that for a moment, the hurt from from losing that All Ireland semi final, does that still linger? Is that still maybe a motivation there for you to to not feel like that again? Um, yes, it hurt. It hurt for a while, but um, I think we're just we're just focused on on this year now and um, focused on. Just keep keeping keep putting in good performances, and hopefully our football can do the talking. And for you as well, then your journey playing with Kerry it hasn't been straightforward. You really only burst onto the scene 
big time last year and you played great stuff um, for your club for so long, but you just weren't in around the county setup. Why do you think that you were overlooked maybe with Kerry County football for so long? I'm not too sure, I suppose. Maybe uh, maybe I just hadn't done enough, um, hadn't played well enough for, for a long enough period. It's probably the reason. And um, then I, I did, did a lot of work um, on my, um, in the gym, in, on my speed, skills, things like that. And uh, when I did get the chance, then I suppose I was kind of ready for it. Yeah, definitely. And obviously you had seen David, he's your younger brother, so he would have been there playing. Was it tough at times to, to see him playing at that level, wanting to be there as well? Um, no, I wasn't. I I was always just concentrating on doing my own thing. Um, uh, I was happy for him when, when he was um, in, in, in positions. He did very well, minor and things like that. Um, so no, I wouldn't say it was tough, no. And last year as well, many people said that you were the main difference really in that in that Kerry team, just the way you feeded the ball into the likes of David and Sean O'Shea. It sort of gave them a new lease of life to not have to come out as much and do that dirty work that you've done so well. Do you like that sort of playmaker role? Uh, yeah, I like I like doing that. I like um, assisting really nearly more than scoring. But when I do get the chance to score, <clears throat> I'd hope that I can take the chances as well. But yeah, that's my favourite um, part of it, trying to be a playmaker. And can you tell me about when you did get your first call-up? What was it like? Um, yeah, it was It was after we mm-hmm. won the count, the first county championship. Um, I got the call from Peter um, to say, would you, would you come in or whatever? And I was delighted, obviously, at the time. Um, I went to America that summer, had a, had a great time, and I probably would have went back to America again the next summer. But um, yeah, I just I was happy to to get the call, and I knew then that's where the work would start. Well, that's good. You got to go to America because sometimes when you get in with the county, all those sort of things go out the window, and you, and you can't travel over there. Who did you play with over there? Um, I actually played with Donegal in New York. New oh, York brilliant! Yeah, I was. I played with a uh, Calvin over in Gaelic Park. It's it's brilliant, doesn't it? Oh, it actually is. Yeah, <laughs> I like it's an astroturf, but it's it's nice and soft, so it's a nice astroturf to play on. Yeah, I used to love playing. It was fast. I used to like yeah, very fast. fast yeah. yeah, yeah. No, it was actually very enjoyable. There was a great buzz around Gaelic Park. You know, that there will always be a few games on, mm-hmm. so um, you got to meet people, and the football is very competitive. And um, now the crack was. Great crack over there, in all fairness. It's uh, Potty Clifford in conversation with Ash. Ash is going to be down at the uh, Comortis Potty Pella. Comortis Pella Potty O'Shea. That's the correct order. Um, we've been down at it various years in the past. It is uh, obscene levels of crack. Is it? I've never been. Ah, oh, really? Yeah. Ah, oh, you should go. Ah, oh, I don't know. You've never been. No, yeah, never been. Ah, look, well, that's on that's on the plan for next year. It's on the bucket list, or you know, I mean, it's like coppers on the night of all Ireland final. Well, it's, it's a, like it's, it's based out of the pub, basically, is it? It's wild. We did the show on the Friday nights, thinking this will be grand. Nobody was there for the first hour, and then all of a sudden, it's like Phew! a bomb goes off of human flesh. It's oh, like, nice! And it's that's uh, exactly what you want. It's the hurling and football teams from 
they were all taking part it's so big now it's in multiple different venues it's wild and it's brilliant brilliant uh, and I presume that the like the, the centre of your night is is the pub or is it mul- is it multiple different places well it, it, the the pub is obviously the um, it starts the there epicenter it's like of a, human flesh you're very close to loads of other places yeah yeah so it's a multi multi venue night it's a great idea in fairness I mean um, in the yeah. wilds of February like that make that completely makes it like I was I was down there before Christmas at, at other voices in Dingle and it was just we were just kind of saying to ourselves if if this wasn't raining and it wasn't like um, a tornado outside this would be way worse I mean what you want is ridiculous conditions how important is Paulie Clifford to the team what what does he need to do this year for them to be a point better than Tyrone and all that semi final because that's all they needed to do to win the All Ireland last yeah, year no, it doesn't need to be much better does he? he's an All Star first full year and he wins his All Star he's he was pretty exceptional last year maybe Sean O'Shea will play a little bit further away from goal this year so uh, he'll be kind of more of a link man more uh, more of a runner with the ball and uh, it's more, going to be more about O'Shea's understanding of David Clifford as opposed to the two brothers' understanding so he's still going to be a guaranteed starter Colin Boyle again I keep going back to this because it was so interesting it was like he dropped off the panel disappears for a couple of years goes off and gets a friend who went to UL to teach him how to try and condition himself and comes back and he's ready and then reels off four successive All-Stars like Mm. one of the few footballers in the history of the game to be an All-Star four years in a row but having been completely out of the system like no you're not good enough you're you're, you're too windy for us that's not what we want and then it's like actually you know I can make it and then he makes it right to the level where he's an All-Star every year even when the team isn't winning you know, like the 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 late bloomer in Irish sport has been the mainstay of our international soccer team for a long time. In in Gaelic, I think we were probably a little bit quick to go. Didn't make it. Not not available to us. But those comeback stories are going to be much more prevalent now. Well, that, that's it exactly. I mean, I think the big moment for Paddy was playing junior football for Kerry, which is and, and like it, it's interesting. Even at intercounty level, junior has kind of like a, a a junior feel to it, where it's like these are the people, the cast offs, the people who just were never good enough. Like Paddy wasn't an underage star for Kerry whatsoever, and uh, for him to make that team, that was a real arrival for him. So, like that's exactly it. It, w- it wasn't so much you know somebody who was who was a great minor and then went into the wilderness a little bit. It was just somebody who who developed late, and it sounds like that experience in America as well was pretty good for him as well, playing with playing with top quality footballers. Seven minutes past nine this morning. Here's what's on OTB Sports Radio today. If you want to get OTB Sports Radio, by the way, just tell your smart speaker to play OTB Sports Radio on TuneIn at half past ten live. It's the Club Championship Show with AIB. OTB Gold at one o'clock is an Irish football special with Shea Given, Niall Quinn, Jason McAteer and Kevin Kilban. The Koi Gig Pod from three o'clock. Our retro panel on... Uh, GA Democracy at 4 o'clock. Colin Gooch Cooper is OTB Gold. And 7 o'clock live tonight is the show with Joe and the lads. We're bringing you Rebecca Clancy on the Formula One before 10. But up next this morning, Daniel Harris will join us to talk about Manchester United. OTB AM. OTB AM is live every morning with Gillette. Good morning. Start with Gillette. Put your best face forward with their new and improved razors tonight. Atletico Madrid versus Manchester United. Two crumbling empires. That's what's happening. That's the narrative in the build-up to this. Uh, one of them will be catapulted into the last eight and probably when they get there believe that they have a chance of going much deeper in the tournament depending on the draw. I'm delighted to say Daniel Harris, football writer, is with us to help preview the game. Daniel, good morning to you. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Hi, everyone. What are your levels of expectation as a Manchester United supporter this morning? As a United supporter, I think United should win this time. Um, I think you have to be careful with Atletico in that they have a performance in them. And you often see it. I mean, I've seen it watching United over the years. I remember in 2000, for example, Real Madrid, United were massive favourites to be Real Madrid. 
And obviously there was other stuff going on. I mean, Fergie sent the team out as though they were playing Di Stefano and Pushkas because he was at that point so obsessed with his own history, his own personal history and history of football. But Madrid found a performance in that tie and they had, ultimately they had good players. And you look at Atletico, they also have good players. So they have players that can do something in a tie and they can find the performance because they've done it before. But ultimately, United should be a bit fresher and hopefully have a little bit more confidence because they've played quite well the last few weeks. Is Sunday then more than just a false dawn? Uh, who knows? I mean, on the one hand, you could say, well, we know that this Leeds side are ideal for United to play against because they played them four times and absolutely stuffed them three times. And the other time, they should have stuffed them as well, really. They just missed a load of chances. Um, so there is that. But on the other hand, if you could look at the Leeds game as a continuation of what we'd seen really, like the, the, they played really well in the second half against Brentford. They played well for a little bit against Villa. They played really well against Borough, managed to stuff it up. They played well for a half against Burnley. Uh, they played well for not so well against Southampton. But they've been getting much better over the last few, year, the last few weeks. And I would say that they're, they're defending quite well now. Uh, Bruno had a bad start to the season by his standards, but yet was still creating more chances than anyone else in the league. But now he's actually playing well as well. Sancho is settled, playing well. So... It's not hard to find a way for, to victory for them. But at the same time, you also know that these are entirely unreliable. So you can never be quite sure what's going to be. And as I said about Atletico, that they have class players who know how to turn it on in big games. And so if they were to pull a performance out of their arse this evening, no one would be that surprised. We go into this game on the back of a couple of interesting comments. Fred is the latest person to, to speak. It's uh, TNT Sports Brazil who he was talking to at uh, this time and he's talking about the lack of a long-term plan at Manchester United. He says it's a little bit bad for us to not have one. At the moment it's all about the short-term goals. We don't know how it's going to be after the end of this season. And we, we'd call him in with us earlier on who was referring to it like kind of an end-of-school situation where everybody's about to go their separate ways and they know that you know the sunshine is out and that there's only a couple of more weeks left of this. Do you get that same feeling around this squad? Uh, I, I absolutely wouldn't put it past this squad, but I find it quite hard to grasp as someone who's just watching because football is never about the future. I mean, you you want people who are overseeing the future and planning for the future, but but football is about now. And Fred shouldn't be worrying about who's going to be managing who's going to be managing him in June. Fred should be worried about putting it all in and leaving it all out there tonight. And in fairness, I think that's what will happen. Uh, I, I'm absolutely certain that, so that people, in, people in any field of human endeavour will find excuses to do less. Uh, and if you want an example, just do some, what, think about the last time you watched a fight and you saw one of the, one of the guys in there gas. Now, you're, that is a tribute to human laziness and human ability to procrastinate and human ability to just get distracted. Because if you go into a fight in a cage and you're under-trained and you're not fit enough, there's a good chance you will take a pasting. And yet you still see people do it quite often. So the idea that footballers would find an excuse to not put it all out there or to not work as hard as they should or to find an excuse for not winning is obviously not that surprising. But I don't think that the serious footballers in that team are genuinely that bothered about that because what they're thinking about is glory now and success now and playing the best that they can now. So... 
I don't. I'm not surprised that they're taking that excuse, but I don't understand why a footballer who's playing for Manchester United would be concerning themselves with who the manager is going to be in a few months when they're playing a Champions League knockout tie away to Atletico Madrid tonight. I mean, it's, it's baffling, really. It's unprofessional and baffling. I guess what 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 is coming through the, the leaks that are coming through um, uh, about different players and the relationship of the individuals and then the the coaching staff seem to be kind of at some point fighting back as well saying well it, it's chaos here I think Miguel Delaney has a, a, a quote about um, about Bruno being um, you know tactically chaotic I, I, I've, I've butchered that so I, I'll get the I'll get it corrected in, in a second but it does it does seem like it's an organization that everywhere it's whack-a-mole with with what the the issue du jour is and that speaks to a lack of leadership and we've talked about that before it comes from the Glazers it comes from the, the previous CEO the new CEO has an opportunity to maybe fix that by some key hires the jury's out on whether or not he's going to be able to turn it around quickly or not in the meantime right um, are you seeing enough from what Ranić is doing to suggest that actually there is a plan there it's just whether or not the, the players are implementing the plan there's definitely a plan. I mean, there were, Ole had a plan. It might have not been a good plan. It might not have been well communicated. It might not have been suitable for the players, but he had one. And, and Rangnick is absolutely a plans bloke. And I think that the way it went at the beginning, I had expected, I didn't expect them to become a brilliant team as soon as the manager changed. I did think that they would get better quicker than they did, and they didn't. But if you look at it now, the only team with more league points than United since Rangnick was appointed as City. And... There have been very significant improvements, particularly in the last month. And I don't understand how anyone would be able to watch United and not think that the performance we saw against Leeds was streets ahead of the performance we saw against Newcastle or against Wolves. Um, I didn't. I was surprised that it took him as long as possible to work out what to do. That the four-two-two-two wasn't suitable for that squad. That he couldn't be leaving out Bruno Fernandez. And to go back to Bruno Fernandez because you mentioned him about the tactical anarchy. Um, I get why someone would think that, but I don't think that it's entirely fair. Because and the reason why I say that is because, number one, if you took Bruno out of this team, it would be a joke. He creates most of the chances, he scores a good chunk of the goals, and mo- a lot of the good stuff comes through him. If you look at the goals they've scored over the last few weeks, even the ones he hadn't scored or created, if you look at the goal against Southampton, for example, he didn't he didn't get the goal or the assist, but it was his pass that broke the broke that broke the lines that had Marcus Rashford basically able to square it to Sancho for a tap in. That was Bruno. He was and he's also running himself into the ground. So it's not like he's not Juan Roman Riquelme, who is a number ten who if you get him the ball in space, then he might do something brilliant, but otherwise he doesn't do anything. He's running harder, I imagine, than almost everyone, probably everyone, covering more ground. And one of the reasons he has to attempt so much stuff is because it's got to a point where almost everything goes through him. Now that Sancho's playing a bit better, actually, I think we're seeing Bruno a bit deeper. And I don't think that Bruno has to be a number 10 with two blokes charging about behind him. I think in a, in a better team, if he had a good number six... He could easily be a number eight. And we're seeing him play a bit deeper now, um, get involved in the play a little bit deeper. Because he's got Sancho ahead of him, you can also be relied upon to create something. And I think that it took Rangnick a while to work out what to do with Bruno. Um, he, he, he left him out of the first available opportunity. When he got he was suspended for the Burnley home game, United whacked Burnley. Bruno didn't start the next game, which was Wolves. They were absolutely dreadful in that game. And the only time they looked like they might score was when Bruno came on. Admittedly, he missed a very presentable chance at nil-nil in that game that you wouldn't expect him to miss, but the fact remains that they had absolutely nothing until he came on. So 
in terms of tactical anarchy, uh, I don't think that there is necessarily a problem in the, with that per se, and that football is chaotic. I also think that Bruno is putting his shift in, and if he had better players around him, more reliable players around him, he wouldn't have to attempt as much as he does because there'd be other people who were doing that and he'd have more opportunity just to keep the play ticking over. But in the last few weeks, I think we've seen more of that and we've seen Pogba come into the team as well. And what Rangnick said about Pogba, people didn't like it at the time, where he said he's not bothered that Pogba won't put it in because he wants if he wants a move, he's going to have to play well. Didn't, didn't sound great, but it was true in that Pogba had a reason to play well beyond the desire to play well. No, it's the truth. Sitting, it, it is that like he, he, he will make more money the better he plays. We're going to benefit from that. It's, it's the bit that you're not supposed to talk about. Um, right. And one of the things I mean, I quite like, one of the things I quite like about Ragnick is that he just tells the truth. Like it's quite, it's very dispassionate that there's no rancor where he says things about people that he's not impressed with or where they've said things that people might not like if they've said publicly. He's just telling the truth and it comes across, um, I think it comes across quite well when he does that. The thing with any manager ultimately is however well you come across is never going to override what does or doesn't happen on the pitch. And it's been very clear over the last few weeks you've seen United get better but they haven't really played anyone that good. And the best team probably that they played was Southampton and they struggled in that game. So you could easily see them struggle tonight, but it would be wrong. I, I would struggle to understand anyone who would say that there hasn't been progress in the time since Rangnick took over because they're much better than the team that lost 4-1 to Watford. And if you look at how they played in that game, the, the improvements have been gradual and incremental. It hasn't been a good performance here, a rubbish performance there, really. Over the last month or so, the performances have just been gradually improving bit by bit. And I was heartened against Leeds because when you saw the weather, you're kind of thinking, not sure I fancy these in that game, but they absolutely put it in. And it's one of the first times I can remember in recent times seeing United winning a physical battle, which they did. And when things went against them, when they tossed the 2-0 in less than a minute in the second half, that would have been an excuse for them to fold. We've seen them struggle in those kind of adverse circumstances over the last bit, but that wasn't what happened. They they hung in there. They, they went again and they won 4-2 and they could have easily won 5-2 or 6-2 and that was that was a massive improvement. But again, in parentheses, this Leeds team are perfect for United. They're missing a lot of their best players also. So, I mean, you would never... This team are a long way away from being anywhere where you could possibly rely on them to do anything. Um. If if Bruno plays as an eight, uh, you you have two sixes, and they have the two sixes in. I mean, maybe maybe Fred's not really a six, and he's been mischaracterised since his arrival in English football. But notwithstanding that, right for for the sake of uh, writing out the team tonight, is it is it McTominay and Fred and Bruno, and that's your they're your three who are going to be in midfield, and then that allows you to have Sancho, Elanga, and a striker in Ronaldo. Is that a four? Two, um, one, two, one. Maybe. I think, well, McTominay, four, three, McTominay, three. Bruno, McTominay and Bruno will definitely play because Bruno's the best player in the team and is playing really well at the moment. And McTominay has played, I think he's started every game pretty much apart from that Champions League game uh, where, where they were through already, which I don't think he started. But he started pretty much every game under Rangnick. Rangnick, he, he is basically the six. He's not a six either. He's an eight. Um, but McTominay will definitely play. I think the choice at that point is... You could, if you assume Atletico are going to sit back, then you might think that you'd be able to play Pogba, Bruno, and McTominay because you're going to have a lot of the ball. 
Um, I don't. I don't think Ralph will do that. I think that he'll probably play Fred um, as well, who's also an eight, because he'll want Fred's energy um, and he'll want Fred's protection because he will run harder than Pogba will. The question then at that point is what you do with Pogba because he's actually a pretty good sub, someone to bring on when the game slows down a bit, who who is physical, he's got a beautiful touch and he's, he's, he's playing well. What I would think about doing, I don't think Ralph will do this, but what I would think about doing is I would probably play Sancho on the right and Pogba on the left of the attack. And the reason that I would do that is because we we almost know for sure Atletico are going to sit back. So the pace in behind of whichever it is, of Ilanga, Lingard or Rashford, is not going to be that necessary in this kind of game. Whereas if you've got Pogba and Sancho and Bruno, you've got three lock pickers there. So and if you don't think he's going to do that, what do you think he's going to do and where will he play Pogba? I think that he'll leave Pogba on the bench. I think it will be Fred McTominay, Bruno and Pogba on the bench. And then the front three, I think, will be Elanga, Ronaldo and um, and Sancho. And the reason I think that is because uh, Lingard, Lingard played the last game. I don't think he played Lingard. I don't think Lingard will play tonight. I mean, he played OK in the last game, but he didn't play that well. And also, what we're seeing from Rangnick is that he obviously much prefers Sancho on the left to the right because whoever the other attacker is, he's basically compromising that player because he really wants to play Sancho on the left. And I think he wants to do that because on the left, he can get Sancho nearer to goal. And he's also more involved in the play as a playmaker. And I think what he's saying is... Sancho is the best of all the options so he's going to play in his best position and the others can just make do so I don't think Lingard's not a right winger I mean really Lingard's number 10 but you could play him on the left again to get him closer to goal but if you play him on the right as he started against Leeds he's unlikely to go on the outside I don't think that's what he's going to do with Lingard tonight Elang um, is a little bit more versatile in terms of his, he's got a bit more pace than Lingard he's a bit stronger than Lingard and just more of a goal scorer than Lingard so I, I think that it'll be uh, I think it'll be Elanger on the right um, because Rashford is just not playing well and it's kind of hard to understand why that is I, I, I'm as confessed I thought Rashford will come back from injury flying because um, he's obviously a good player we know how good he is and he'd had the time off to get himself healed he'd had a rest he'd had a mental rest I, I'm not sure what's going on with Rashford but I don't think he's earned the right to start in this game and I think Elanga has so that's what I think the front three will be What's going to be the centre-back partnership for the rest of the season? And how confident or otherwise are you of, say, a, a Scott McTominay and, and Paul Pogba midfield giving Harry Maguire the required protection? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that it will be Maguire. I think I think that Ralph has decided on Maguire. Obviously, Varane will play. I think that dropping Maguire, he sort of did it when Maguire... When Maguire when he was, because Maguire was he injured and, he, and Lindelof played. And he actually sort of had an excuse then if to keep playing Lindelof and, um, and Varane because Lindelof was playing all right. But then Lindelof's home got burgled, so he brought Maguire back in. So then he was actually going to have to drop Maguire, drop the captain, whereas previously he could have had a situation where Lindelof and Varane were playing and it could be, well, the guy who came in played, well, you're not dropped, you just haven't, can't win your place back until until Lindelof does something wrong and then it would have been much easier but now I don't think Rangnick will want the aggravation of dropping the captain want the unwanted attention of dropping the captain and there'll be games for Lindelof and football for Lindelof because Varane they don't want to play Varane two games a week um, so like they left him out against Leeds because they want to be careful with his fitness so there'll be enough games for Lindelof but I think the first choice partnership will be Maguire and Varane and what the thing about Maguire is his 
his just this season he's perpetrated some of the worst games I've ever seen from a United centre back and you can't get away from the fact that if you're that unreliable then you unlikely to be the future for a team that wants to go on and win things but there have also been difficult circumstances that would be silly just to completely ignore them although you would expect the captain someone who costs what Maguire costs who was meant to be your defensive leader to override that it's not the case but it doesn't mean that Maguire's top level isn't an alright level it's not as good a level as numerous United defenders who've gone before him and I'm not just talking about the best ones either it's not just that he's not a McGrath Vidic Ferdinand Stam level player he's not a Ronnie Johnson or Wes Brown level player either but his when he's playing well he's he's good enough to be okay at this level like he can like he can play he can play international football he can play Champions League football but he has to be at his best to do it is he really not as good as Ronnie Johnson? Oh, come on, man. He's not the same. Like, Ronnie Johnson could run. Ronnie Johnson had everything Maguire had. He was good on the ball. Ronnie Johnson could play in midfield. When United played a quarterfinal in San Siro against Inter in 99, uh, Henning Berg and Yap Stam played at the back, and Ronnie Johnson played in midfield. He was good on the ball. He was as strong as Maguire, and he was quicker. He was a much better player than Maguire. It's not even close. And similarly, Wes Brown, a much better player than Maguire. But that doesn't mean, because these other players were much better than him, that Maguire isn't a useful player. He's not. He doesn't have attributes. He's just his attributes aren't as strong as you would like him to be and he's not as reliable as you would want him to be and what he doesn't have another defender who isn't someone anyone would even think of Mikel Silvestre was error prone in a way that Maguire is but he had recovery pace that Maguire doesn't have and if you're not the other thing we should say in Maguire's defence I think is that if you are a defender who has a slow turning circle and doesn't have a great deal of pace then you could do with a keeper behind you who comes off his line. De Gea doesn't really do that. And it may well not be a coincidence that Maguire's best run of form for United in the second half of last season came when Henderson was in net. But the best defenders don't require that. They don't require a goalkeeper to have a particular style of goalkeeping. But if you're, yeah, if you're slow and you, have a, and you keep a high line, you want to keep a high line, then a goalkeeper that's rooted to his goal line is not helpful and we can we can understand all those things about Maguire that the whole team was chaotic at the time and but ultimately if you're the captain you're meant to be a defensive organizer a lot of those structural faults are your business to try and sort out and also the mistakes that we see Maguire making this season we're not just talking about oh look he's been left on his own by a centre-back partner or the fullback's not covering him or the goalkeeper's rooted to his line they're mistakes that you wouldn't want to see from a child uh, their losses of composure, their losses of concentration. And ultimately, as a player, whatever's going on behind the scenes, you have to take responsibility for your own performances. And Maguire, I'm sure, is responsible, takes responsibility for his own performances that he'll know haven't been good enough. But again, his, his top level, Maguire playing well, is an all right level and should be good enough to be able to deal with Joao Felix and Luis Suarez, especially given he's going to have Rafael Varane next to him. I know that he doesn't go underappreciated by Manchester United fans, but if Wes Brown was 15 years younger and was playing in the same era as Harry Maguire, do you think that, you, like your point there about him being much better than Harry Maguire, do you think that'd be just naked for everyone to see? Because like, even if you judge it through the prism of, of England, he, he finished up with 23 England caps and Harry Maguire is already well into the 40s at the age of 28. Granted, he's not competing with Ferdinand and Terry for, for, for um, jerseys in the team. And Campbell and King and injury. And Carragher. And injury. And Carragher. Like, there was loads of good centre-backs around. Like brilliant, The best centre-backs in the world were English at the time Wes Brown was playing. But also, Wes Brown struggled with injury, but... 
I mean, Wes Brown was played centre-back in United back four that kept out Barcelona for 180 minutes of a Champions League tie. And his performance in that second leg against Barca is probably the greatest performance I've ever seen from a United defender. Definitely the best since McGrath in the 85 Cup final. Um, so, I mean, again, like Wes Brown was strong. He was stronger than Maguire, I would say. He was quicker than Maguire. He was better on the ball than Maguire. Like Fergie said, Wes Brown was one of the best, defend- one of the best natural defenders he'd ever seen. I would say the, the injuries that Wes Brown had uh, early on in his career, he became he became sort of more of a, a tough defender rather than a good on the ball defender. It sort of felt like he lost a lot, a bit of the ability on the ball with the injuries. But Wes Brown played right back in the team that won the Champions League, so that guy that, that guy could play football at seventeen. I think he was was he seven? No, he was nineteen. He was playing right back in the new Camp. Fergie trusted him to put him in. To put him playing right back in the new camp, I don't think you'd see Harry Maguire playing right back in the new camp when the other team have got Figo and Rivaldo and making that making a success of it. So yeah, I I, I mean I, I I don't think it's close. I don't think that Harry Maguire is probably a better centre back than Henning Berg was either. But again, like these are all good players, and Harry Maguire is a good player. What I think is that if you're giving eighty million pounds for centre back, and Harry Maguire didn't set the fee, this is not Harry Maguire's fault. This is the fault of Ole, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, and whoever else was responsible. If you're giving eighty million pounds for centre back, you should be getting the centre back who's the best centre back in the world. And Harry Maguire isn't that, uh, and that and it's not a good. We're not talking about a good era of centre backs either. But again, he can be good, and he can be good enough. So give me uh, hope. Give me, oh. a, give me a centre back who he he's better. Who's played for United? Like, yeah, where, where's, where's the floor here? Where? Yeah. Who is he better than? Uh, Steve Bruce. I mean, no, I don't think. He's, I mean, I, I mean, Steve Bruce would obviously, would obviously find it harder playing today than when he did then with Nicky centre forwards. But ultimately, the thing about Steve Bruce that I, I kind of hoped I joked when United was tr- or after Maguire because I didn't want him to sign Maguire. Is he just Steve Bruce for the first touch? But the truth is, is he's, he's not Steve Bruce. Steve Bruce was someone who, who you could who was you could rely on to score to score goals. In 1991, I think Bruce scored 21 goals. He took penalties um, though. Some, he, some of them were penalties, yeah. but not not all of them were penalties. Twelve like, or thirteen, I think. Right, so that's still a that's still a decent return. Yeah, fair enough. Two yeah. two goals against Sheffield Wednesday when you needed them. But let's just forget about it. Let's just talk about the defending. I thought and I hoped that there would be games that where you win by one goal, and the reason you win them by one goal is because you've got Maguire. He's basically heading everything away. He's just a giant in the box, defending the box. Now Steve Bruce was that. Maguire is not that. And Steve Bruce had the, I mean Steve Bruce had a better partner than Maguire has had a lot of the time. He played with Gary Pallister, who was a great athlete quick, strong, fast, good on the ball. Um, but Maguire, and, but when people talk to also, back to that lack of structure point, it has, doesn't seem to be affecting Varane in the way that it affects, it's been affecting Maguire, this, he's this not lack of course. structure. Yeah. Um, he's, so, he, so is there anybody that has played centre-back regularly for United in the last 15 years that Maguire is better than? Oh, I was going to go Mark Higgins. He's, be- he's, be- he's better than Mark Higgins. He's better than David May. Um, I mean, the thing is, it's difficult because in the in the time I've been watching, United have had two centre back partnerships that lasted the generation. So they had uh, Ferdinand and Vidic, who were there for a long time, and Bruce and Pallister, who were there for a long time. In between that, you had some Yap, St- Yap Stander, who's the best defender in the world, and, and Ronnie Johnson. And yeah, I mean, they're, they're all better than Maguire, late, but late, being less good than those players. Late period, Laurent Blanc. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, I mean, Prunier? He's not as good on the ball as Blanc was. Did, did Prunier play enough games to, to qualify for this? Um, yeah, well, 
One of my favourite moments came watching Prunier play for United. I was behind the goal when they lost 4 1 to Spurs on New Year's Day, the, the classic Prunier game. And I was able, Ronnie Rosenthal was taking a corner for Tottenham. And I was down at the front and I was able to swear at Ronnie Rosenthal in Hebrew, which wasn't <laughs> something I ever thought I would have the privilege of being able to do watching Premier League football is give abuse in the Brit to an opposition player. But there we go. Did he that notice? Was... Did he turn around and go, hang on a second? Yeah, yeah, he didn't, he didn't respond, but you can be sure that you can be sure that he noticed in Hebrew because it's like a, it's a guttural language and it's, it's a language where you can wrench syllables to be able to say things in a particular way. So one, the, one, the, like the most common insight is Benzel now in Hebrew. Um, but the, the way you're able to say it, and it's a really good language to be able to hand out abuse to much better than English I would say most languages are actually better than English it turns out for handing out abuse particularly because uh, the, the buttoned up Anglo-Saxon world doesn't allow any kind of um, you know proper I mean, even if you think about a word, I mean, and this is particularly so if you're from the south in London. I mean, in south of England, I'm from, I'm from London. So I grew up, like, my dad wasn't, my dad's from Manchester, but he wasn't a big swearer. Um, so I grew up and I, like, you call someone a bastard. And I remember like, one of my friends from Newcastle was like, you call someone a bastard, it sounds like you're giving them a compliment. Like, the word is bastard. And then you can insert some proper venom. And I can't really argue with that. On that note, uh, give us a prediction. <laughs> uh, I think that United will win this game 2-1, and I th- think they'll win the tie. But even, yeah, I, I mean, I think, I think, I think, yeah, I think, I think they'll win tonight because I think that they've got enough, uh, enough confidence from the last few games and the attacking players are playing well enough to find some spaces in Athletic Coast defence. So I think United will win 2-1 tonight. It's getting to squeaky bum time either way. Daniel, great stuff. Thanks a million. See you again. Bye. Good day, uh, Daniel Harris there giving us uh, an accidental power ranking of where Harry Maguire is in the history in the pantheon of Manchester United defenders and it's pretty low. It's further down the list than I would have thought. Yeah, it's... Uh, if you were to do... Ahead of David May, behind Henningberg. If you were to do a draft of uh, Premier League defenders and all you could sign was Premier League defenders, where would he Where would he draft up under? Or if you could only do a draft of Manchester United centre-backs over the last 30 years, you're getting to the very end of that group and it's like... Sixty-year-old uh, Laurent Blanc is kind of standing beside her and going, "What? Mm. I'm like, come on, better this guy." But um, we've we've all felt that, haven't we? Yeah, like uh, we absolutely have. But so, someone somewhere, and a lot of people in one place in particular have have seen something in this guy. Um, yeah, it might be due to a lack of options. Selling to Newcastle. OTBIM is brought to you by Gillette. Good morning. Start with Gillette. Put your best face forward with their new and improved razors. We've been asking you for your best football movies today. Zidane, a 21st century poet. Great Mogwai soundtrack, says Peter. Mike Bassett, football manager. Another shout for that. Has to be the true story of Escape to Victory. I still try and watch it once a year. Great crack all together, says Shifty Lads. Good morning to you, Shifty. Marvellous with Toby Jones. Is a great feel-good football movie. Stumbled across it a few years back, says Mervyn. I don't know that. I haven't seen it. Next Goal Wins is a great feel-good football documentary and soon-to-be movie. It's on Sky, currently well worth watching, says David. Mean Machine, Vinny, Vinny Jones, mm. I have not seen, from Cavan Lad. Yeah, uh, falls right into that 6 out of 10 category. Come on, OTB, it has to be Graham Hunter's take the ball, pass the ball, surely. Oh, we, yeah. we, it, yes, like we weren't, we weren't allowing documentaries. We weren't and, then, uh, and then obviously that's all that happened, so... Um, There's a message in there somewhere. Yeah. Tomorrow morning on OTBAM, Mexican filmmaker Miguel Flato joins us in studio. Uh, he's going to be here to talk about his new film, For Diego. We're going to pick our competition winner later on and get in touch with him today. You can tweet us your shout now, at Off The Ball, at Off The Ball AM on Twitter, and we'll uh, leave it open until midday. And we've tickets to give away to the screening tomorrow as well. OTB. 
AM. With Gillette, put your best face forward with our new and improved razors. 